Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. and welcome to Under Consultation, a podcast guide through the UK video game shows that aired in the aftermath of Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Cohen, and if you think this is a pawn, you should see my hard drive. And still smarting over the fact that that bitch Luke Owen stole my skull, I am Ash Versus. This episode, or singular episode, of Charlie Brooker's Games Wipe aired on the 29th of September 2009. Halo 3 is top of the video game charts, Sexy Chick by David Guetta is top of the pops, and Fame Wants to Live Forever at the top of the UK box office. Sometimes I wonder Fame's a remake. That's that's all there is to it. There's only one person in the film that was in the original, and that's Debbie Allen, who portrays the school principal in this one. I actually know more about Fame, the original film and TV series, than this. I had forgotten this film existed. Can't really say much about this. 
same for the number one song, but mainly I don't want to because what we're covering today is double the length of any show we normally cover. And a lot is covered within this because there's almost like a history of video games is covered within this and various different topics about videos as well. Also, it's a Charlie Brooker gig, therefore... There is a lot of talking. Yeah. If you think about the average episode of Games Master, we get, what, 24 minutes. And you can guarantee at least 10 minutes of that will probably be gameplay footage and various bits and pieces and bumpers. This is 50 minutes, and I would say at least 47 and a half of those minutes is someone talking. There's, there's a lot of content in this. Uh, I, on the, the little bit to say on fame, uh, this really transported me back to this period of time seeing that because I completely forgot that this film existed. But I then was transported to be standing on like Twyford Station waiting for a train to take me back to Reading while listening to Kermode and Mayo and their uh, their Five Life podcast. Like, I got heavily into podcasts like the year, two years previous to this. And that and Adam and Joe were like my podcast du jour. And I was listening to them a lot every single week of the new episodes. So this really did transport me back to, to Kermode and Mayo, particularly because the film that's number one the week before this was cloudy with a chance of meatballs mm. and Kermode's review of that movie really made me want to go and see that I was very glad that I did because that movie's awesome if we'd got that as number one movie it would have been difficult not to talk about it and this isn't the last time that Mark Kermode we brought up on this episode he has some choice words later on yeah he's he's not a fan of the video games it is, it is Mark Kermode um I've got nothing to say about David Guetta. However, on the note of music, looking at some TV news from around this period of time, September 16th, four of the Spice Girls reunite for dinner and drinks in London. The exception being Sporty Spice. No, of course it's Posh Spice, who was in LA at the time. It's the first time all of them had reunited in public since 2007. Yeah, and of course the rumour mills started then. And to be honest, the rumour mills will still go even to this day. I just have this one in here just for you because uh, one week before this aired, September 21st, a week after Daniela Westbrook's return to EastEnders, a spokesman for the soaps confirmed that she'll be leaving the series again at the end of the year. Yep. <laughs> she sure did. Yeah, she did. And this last one here, granted it's about sort of a week after uh, this episode aired, but this is very much just for me and you. October 10th, it is confirmed that Red Dwarf will be commissioned for a full series following the success of Back to Earth. It will be recorded in 2010 for Dave. It is amazing that we got that given Back to Earth. I mean, I still think there is still a 30-minute episode in there that's probably not the best of Red Dwarf, but it's also not what we got on the screen. Thankfully, Red Dwarf 10, 11 and 12 were, for the most part, fucking great yeah so much better like back to back to earth was weird really weird because it doesn't have the laugh track on it either it's odd it's an odd watch and then it goes in an even odder direction when it gets to its third episode and the weird thing is is when they announced there's this thing coming out called red dwarf back to earth before any pictures or anything had emerged and it's like oh they're doing the red dwarf movie it'll be a smaller budget but they're doing the red dwarf movie boy that was a cock punch yeah a little bit <laughs> On to Charlie Brooker's Games Wipe. I'm such a fan of Charlie Brooker. Uh, I very much enjoyed the, the, the books that he's released, uh, his, you know, the articles that he has written over the years for The Guardian and things like that. But I love Screen Wipe and I love News Wipe and I really like his brand of comedy. When I did a, 
uh, a series for one of our uh, channels that we we run during the pandemic, this was kind of the style that I wanted to evoke. This sort of like moving around to various different locations stuff. And I, I went talking to one of my coworkers, and he was talking about like the style of it. I was like, I want it to look like uh, screen wipe. That's that's the style I'm looking for here. I'm trying to frame this in the same way that Brooke frame, uh, frames screen wipe. And so I was really excited that we got this coming up in our timeline. I always enjoy hanging out and spending a bit of time with Brooker. I really like Black Mirror. Uh, it's not always a winner, but I think when it hits, it absolutely smashes out of the park. I am very excited to spend some time with the new series of Black Mirror. I haven't watched any of them yet, but at least two of them. I'm looking at them going, oh, yeah, I already know I'm going to like that one. And Game Swipe's an interesting idea for brooker to be doing here because like he much like you know with with rab and and ryan that we've spoken about the last couple of weeks he loves video games like this is one of his big passions is the world of video games and playing video games and talking about them so it was quite cool for him in a way to be able to take his well-established format and apply it to the video game world this doesn't feel like it's going to be the start of a series. That kind of was the intent of it. It was sort of like a pilot, see if we could do like a a series of, of shows like this, like they had done for, for Screenwipe and Newswipe. I do miss those shows, by the way. I really wish he would do them again. Death to 2020 was fine and all. What I want is Charlie Brooker's end of year Screenwipe. So, so I, I like that the ambition that the show's had, but this does feel like it should just be a one-off special as opposed to the start of something new. Yeah, I mean, to to talk very briefly about Charlie Brooker's relationship with gaming, if you're not aware of it, I mean, the dude kind of got his start in the gaming world with a firm that we've encountered via our coverage of Games Master. We saw Goblin stealing import consoles from them. He did adverts for a computer exchange, now known as CEX or WeBuy or whatever you want to do, where you go to get your mobile phones, basically. Mm -hmm. But that was how he got his start. He also became a reviewer. He wrote reviews for PC Zone. But then he moved on and he started um, writing for a number of television shows and, and working on kind of like more broader broadcast areas. He worked on Brass Eye, the 11 o'clock show. In fact, the year before this was broadcast, he did Dead Set. Dead Set was great. That is on a list of things that I'm like, as horror fans, we should do something on that at some point because yeah. it is a real snapshot of 2008 because it's like, what if, Luke, what if a horror movie on Big Brother? Yeah, exactly. Honestly, I, it was actually way better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, because like Ben Elton did a book, uh, Dead Famous, which was like, what if Big Brother, but it's a murder mystery. Yeah. And it's, there's a very good snapshot of reality tv at the time and i think that's one of the things that brooke is very good at is and one of the successes that he had with black mirror in those first couple of uh, series that he did when they were on channel four was reflecting culture at the time and like what pop culture was he's very clever like you know him and um connie huck did that episode that was essentially a parody of the x factor mm. and because connie huck was then using her experiences having worked on the X Factor to put that together. I think that's one of his great strengths is looking at the world and applying that slight twisted edge to it. I mean, to give a very, very quick rundown of Screenwipe, for those of you that may have never seen it, because it's been off the, off the air for a while. It certainly has. He presented it in much the same set we see here. It's basically in his living room. It's kind of slightly cluttered, slightly messy. It's like most of our living rooms. And he's got his laptop there and he's got the TV. And he would basically look at 
other television programmes review them. In many ways, it's a more professional goggle box in a way. Yes. He wouldn't just look at like, oh, here's what's happening on Emmerdale. Here's what's happening here. It wouldn't be that or that kind of thing that... Uh, TV burp. Exactly. It wouldn't be TV burp. He would look at the weirder stuff. He'd go and look at the odd documentaries. He'd look at the odd channels, like the horoscope channels, babe station, gambling channels, stuff like that. He would go for the things that people aren't likely to be aware of or wouldn't admit to being aware of in the case of some of it. It was just this entire format that he kind of made up himself. Like there was nothing like it. I, I literally, I cannot think of any show that kind of really is comparable other than his own shows. No, exactly. And he gave uh, a good platform to launch the careers of other comedians. Philomena Kunk comes from Screenwipe and like her and Barry Shippies were these sort of like two regular Joe uh, talking heads. And then Philomena Kunk gets to be, gets a bit more screen time where she becomes a roving reporter. And eventually she got off to go and do her own TV show. And I, the, the character of Philomena Kunk is, is a perfect character. And, she worked so well on Screenwipe, but works brilliantly outside of that format as well. No one knows exactly where it came from, although there's a theory someone bought it at a market in China and then spread it around the world. To be honest, it's a scandal it was even on sale in the first place. My mate Paul says the virus is spread by a new 5G phone signal, but the mainstream media is trying to cover that up just because it isn't true. Phone companies say 5G is safe, but they can't know because 5G is totally unlike anything we've seen before, apart from 4G and 3G and 2G and 1G, which I think was called WAP, probably to put us off the scent. Anyway, Paul sent me this really interesting video where David Icke managed to get the message out. If they start firing out 5G at 60 gigahertz, they're going to have a lot of people who are going to keel over because they can't absorb oxygen. I thought he was talking out of his arse, but then Paul explained how the phone companies use a Jewish computer to replace everything David Icke says with absolute bullshit in a bid to discredit him. As soon as he said that, the way David Icke doesn't make sense suddenly made sense. Uh, there's a handful of, like, Brooker lines from Screen Wipe and things like that that have always stuck with me because he once described Theresa May as looking like the owner of a haunted art gallery. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I was like, that's exactly what she looks like. And that's one of the things I really like about Brooker. He taps into it and you'd be like, that's it. That is exactly what he... That's exactly what I've been trying to think of and I couldn't find the words for it. She would be under a mask on Scooby-Doo. Yes, and so you had Screenwipe, and then, as you mentioned, you had Newswipe. There was also Weekly Wipe and stuff. But Gameswipe was a one-off. It was for the BBC's technology season. So while it could have been a backdoor pilot, it definitely was originally kind of put together as maybe a, this is just it, Let's and we'll see and where see. it goes. Yeah. It, it's so odd because it is a one-off, and it does contain a history of video games. But also it is presented as possibly part of an ongoing series by having reviews which are also reviewed very much in the Charlie Brooker style that you would have seen on, on Screenwipe. And he's not alone. We get appearances from Dario Breen. We get appearances from Rab and Ryan from Consolvania and Video Gaiden. Rebecca Mays is in there. And someone we're not going to talk about. And we yeah. will skip over that bit of the show. It did very well. The first screening did over 360,000 viewers. It basically outperformed Screen at Newswipe in that regard. Some people liked it. Uh, was it MCV? really liked it the problem is and this is something i imagine we'll go into more as we cover the episode 
is it wasn't pitched at gamers. It was pitched at people that had an opinion of gamers despite not being gamers. It was pitched to the general public. It was doing that thing that Games Master did do well, which is producing a show that gamers could enjoy, but which also could appeal to a broader spectrum. Like, you know, that's why they explain what's a platform game, particularly yeah. those first two, three seasons. That did also mean that online, people were going, why is he telling us what a platform game is? We fucking know what a platform game is. We've heard of this game. So it, it was a very Marmite thing because if you weren't a gamer, you might not take much from this. And if you weren't a gamer, I'll be honest, I'm not sure it would give you a good opinion of gamers anyway. Because there are reviews in here, but those reviews don't feel like they're aimed at the casual audience that the rest of the show feels like it's aimed at. I think that's one of, one of Charlie Booker's great strengths is that he doesn't just appeal to like I think you know people say you've got to be intellectual to, to watch his show but he does appeal to a mass market thing like his screen wipe and his yearly screen wipes that he ended up doing uh, in like 2016 and 2017 would appeal to everyone it's just like this is a great wrap up of the year and you can just have some funny jokes and games wipe has that same thing if you're not a gamer or you have no interest about gaming or about gaming what you have here is a very entertaining 50 minute show that is packed full of funny people talking about games but there's also some like fun little nuanced things in there that are for hardcore gamers so i don't think it quite gets the balance of is this for the casuals or is this for gamers it's i i don't think it quite finds the right level that it's trying to hit one thing you'll notice is that as i said earlier we skimmed over the movie we skimmed over the song we've given a very brief overview of charlie brooker news wipe screen wipe and Games wipe, and it's because this thing is 50 minutes long. We've got a lot to get through. So, Luke, shall we crack on? Hello, I'm Charlie Brook, and you're watching Games Wipe, a program all about video games. Video games, bleeping, blooping, masturbatory aids for emotionally crippled social outcasts, probably male outcasts, probably physically repugnant and sexually inexperienced, probably frightened of the real world, probably standing here on this very spot saying these very words to camera right now, probably me. Basically, video games are for losers like me, apparently. I love this opening title sequence. It's a you very can't see cool. it, you can only hear it, but it, it's a journey through video games up until, well, kind of the 16-bit era. We don't go 32-bit. No, it, that's kind of like that beautiful little retro style of animation that you can do to kind of introduce this as a show. But then we are like jumping straight into modern-day gaming because what we have is a Wii version... Uh, what were they called? The the, the little like Wii characters, Mies. Mies. That's exactly that's what they were called. Or the Xbox 360 equivalent. It's kind yeah. of put this way. It's close enough to both of them that you might recognise it, but it's independent enough that neither are going to sue. So I went more towards me because he's also flying through like uh, Mario Galaxy. Yeah. So I I looked at it more as a me than I did the, the Xbox avatar. But yeah, we get this little kind of CGI Charlie Brooker saying. You know, welcome to Gameswipe, a program all about video games. Currently on accuracy, we're at 100% because it is definitely a program about video games. That is true. And then we cut to the, the real Charlie Brooker and... We believe. We believe, yes. And this is like a, you know, a really, really good CGI version of him. In 2009. <laughs> yeah. Surrounded by... Well, not really surrounded, but he's got like some arcade machines in the background. So this is like one of our locations that we'll be cutting to every now and again. Like the way the like 
screen wipe or news wipe do is that there's the living room setting then there's almost like the news desk setting and then there'll be one of his external settings that he will visit the external setting in this one being like a a room where someone is playing a video game on a pc playing do mostly or zx81 or similar but this is also i'm looking at the location he's in with these couple of arcade machines and i'm like that's definitely a warehouse in london yeah yeah that's one of those places that's now an office space or a workspace or one of those communal office places which yeah i've worked in those but it makes quite a cool thing because it's not just the white void that we're used to from a lot of these shows there's some architecture there's some bricks there's some windows and hey there's a couple of old arcade machines there i recognize space invaders for certain and it's a lovely intro because it's if this is your first time with Charlie Brooke, and I'd be very interested to know if this is like people listening to this podcast, if this is their first exposure to a, a Charlie Brooker show. Poetic is, is certainly one word to describe the way that Brooker's Brooker's prose, if you will, but he's a good wordsmith and he is an excellent TV presenter as well because. He does something that is very difficult to do, which is to take the language that he uses, which is very descriptive, but make it sound incredibly natural and not like he's just reading off an autocue or he's just reciting it from memory. His delivery very much reminds me of uh, Paul Merton or Sean Hughes from their Channel 4 era comedy. Just kind of weathered and run, you know, world weary is the phrase I'm probably looking for. Yeah. Yeah, gamers are weirdos like me. Yeah, games have a bit of an image problem. It doesn't help that you rarely see games on TV, and when you do, they're often being discussed in searingly negative terms. In Grand Theft Auto, your son, or your husband, or your boyfriend, or whoever, can hire a prostitute, have sex with her, and then beat her to death with a baseball bat. Ever since the primitive early days of video gaming, TV has never really known how to convey the white-hot electronic thrill of the pixelated realm. Here's a brand new idea from the United States which can turn your television set into a game that two can play. All you have to do is uh, first of all to switch it off, unplug the aerial, plug in the electronic game simulator, switch on the set again, and now who's for tennis? Play. 15 love. Christmas looks fun around your house. But it also, as a format themselves, and this is kind of like our first chunk of the episode that he's looking at here, is that video games have an image problem. That the TV, and this is kind of like a, a very clever thing to do as well, because it's like, well, this is a TV show that people have to make because no one really knows how to make TV shows about video games. Although I will say, uh, Mr. Brooker, 190 episodes into this podcast, we've talked about a lot of these TV shows. A lot of people have tried, and we've talked about them all. But, Luke, have they done it on the BBC? Uh, Video Guidance did. In an hour-long format? Uh, no, maybe that's the problem. It's... On prime time, 10 o'clock? No, well, that's the thing. Is They were, they were past the, well past the watch show. They were past 11 o'clock. But also, it's BBC Scotland, and I don't think that one counts as much. Yeah, that's, that's for, um, what are they called? Scottish people. That's the one, That's yeah. The one. But yeah, I like it about how it's got this uh, this image problem. And <laughs> we got to Glenn Beck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brooker, in his sort of living room format, has said that TV does not know how to convey this white-hot electronic thrill of the pixelated realm. Very flowery language, but very, very good. And then comes one of my favourite things from Brooker shows, Archive. 
oh, this archive footage is just like this was, this was oh, this was nectar to me. I, my wife works within this field and this is the sort of shit that she loves. Like this is the, the sort of thing that she kind of obsesses over. And so she is fascinated by this. And then if we, if we were to watch this, she would then just tell me how they got this and just tell me how they would have got this, how they would have licensed it, and this and that. So I, I you know, love it that through osmosis, but I love it because I like hearing her talk about archive. I just enjoy seeing archive. Like I saw this first bit of footage, this kind of like very early video games footage, and the man in this is entirely in beige. <laughs> he is just, he is, we've talked about brown. We are now in the world of beige. It's a beige Christmas, specifically, it's a beige Christmas 1973 because while it's not credited as such on the episode, this is Raymond Baxter demonstrating the latest Christmas gift on a Christmas episode of Tomorrow's World. It's so cool. This is beautiful archive. It's wonderfully 70s. Of course it is. I love the the, the, the backdrop that they've got. The images. It's like going to your nan's house. Yeah. It's going to, like going to your nan's house through the medium of archive. It also speaks of where the TV sat in the living room at this time because there's a seat directly next to the TV because the TV's just there occasionally. It's not the centrepiece of the living room, unlike now where everything is kind of arranged around the television because you all want a good view. It's the, the age-old question of like, uh, well, I don't have a TV. It's like, well, what does your furniture point at? You, you talk to each other? <laughs> yeah. Man. You're weird. What a weirdo. Speaking of weirdos, this woman does not want to be in this clip. <laughs> they're sat there playing basically Pong. Because this is basically like one of those like TV6 type deals where you have got like multiple games within uh, a little video game unit thing that has got its various different peripherals that you can pick out, one of which is a gun. <laughs> we come to it later, and again, it's a visual thing, but when he pulls this gun out, I'm like... This is taking a dark turn because it looks like a real gun. It looks like it's an, actually from a Harry Enfield sketch. And he's just like, and if you have to get bored of that, you can get a gun and shoot your wife. It, it looks like a real shotgun. <laughs> and he's like, no, look, it's fun. Clay pigeons. Pew, pew. <laughs> but we are playing, you know, very lovely. Like, you know, it's like, hey, anyone for tennis? 15 love. I'm beating you at this game because you're a woman folk who should be in the kitchen. It, Raymond Baxter wasn't like that, but it is that era. But it's the, the I mean, I said uh, Harry Enfield earlier because this is the sort of thing that Harry Enfield and Chums very, very, very well parodied in like, women, know your place. Like that style of, of Cover sketch. up those table legs, mother. They're inflaming my <laughs> sexual ardour. <laughs> this is what happens when information enters a man's brain. Now let's see what happens when it enters a woman's brain. See, it's all over the place. We are quoting comedy sketches that were not serious at the time. Please don't clip that out of context, you bastards. Uh, just a quick note, Raymond Baxter. This guy's here, like, in beige, demonstrating TV games. But in addition to presenting Tomorrow's World for, like, 12 years, he also provided radio commentary at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, the funeral of King George VI, Winston Churchill and Lord Mountbatten, and also provided live narration for the first flight of Concord. And here he is, playing Pong. <laughs> playing Pong. Ah, 30 love. That points to me there. And it's, I mean, the, one of the great things about this show, and something that happens a lot through this, it's the Snyder sides from Brooker. Because he would just cut back to him, and he'd go like, oh, Christmas looks funny at your house. 
I mean, hey, they've got a banging Christmas tree. There's a lot of tinsel there that I'm sure is all perfectly fl- non-flammable and safe. Also, they've got a video game system. They probably have got a really fun Christmas there, Brooker. They've got Pong and a gun. <laughs> and a gun. I wouldn't have a Christmas like that until 1992. When you had the gun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we get the bit talking about how games got more complex. And of course, Pac-Man and Space Invaders are referenced because they are common frames of reference for people watching this that aren't gamers. We talked about it last episode that people know who Cthulhu is. Same frame. People know what a Pac-Man is. Yeah. People know what a Space Invader is. That's, that's got something to it. They are games that have grown outside of gaming culture and they are just part of modern day regular ass culture, pop culture. Speaking of pop culture, you know what else people know? They know Morecambe and Wise. Genuinely, of all the archive footage we get in this episode, and we get some banging footage, this is the bit that made me laugh the most. There's a whole five or six adverts featuring these guys selling Atari. And not only selling Atari, but selling it with more conviction than I think almost any advert afterwards for any more modern games console. These adverts sell Atari better than anyone sold the Mega Drive with the Cyber Razor cut. I wish that these were talked about more. Uh, uh, with the same reference of the way that people talk about the Rick Mail era of SNES adverts. Because that's more or less what we have here. This is almost like the 70s version, an early 80s version, of Rick Mail promoting the SNES, of doing comedy sketches in Rick Mail style. What we have here is Morecambe and Wise doing Morecambe and Wise style humour while talking about Atari. And relatively convincingly miming playing the video games that are clearly someone else playing. I assume maybe they were proper gamers. I want to believe. <laughs> I want to believe. But they're really, really funny. Like Eric's like, ah, oh, beginner's luck. And Ernie's just like, yeah. Same as it was beginner's luck when I beat you at other things, like Space Invaders, Defender, Yars Revenge. Revenge. I never thought I'd hear it's early Yars say, Revenge. I, just, I never thought I'd hear Morecambe Wise talk about Yars Revenge. Well, that, I, the weird thing is, again, I'd seen this before. Why had I not brought up Morecambe and Wise adverts before now? Well, that's what I mean about, like, I wish that these, these, these adverts were more... That were more reverential. Like, I think people were more reverential towards them because I think that these probably are as entertaining as the Rick Mail ones. It's just that the Rick Mail ones happened in the 90s when people of our generation were probably more aware of them. This is, this is airing way before, like, well, certainly for me, before our time. But some of these adverts are just so good. Some of them make Ernie the punchline. Some of them make Eric the punchline. And they're just, they are, they're fun. They're joyous. And they're not, punching down on Atari. They're punching down on each other because that's what a double act does. But the Atari is the star and I love them for that. When it wasn't accepting the mucky advertising dollar, however, TV was treating games with disapproving paternal disdain. Most games are developed from just a few classic themes. There's monster games like this one where you run around bumping off critters or swallowing giant cherries. And there's the Space Invader theme where you move up, you shoot at moving fleets of hostile aliens. Fairly boring. And then there's the more recent sports games. Well, sports games to me are perhaps the most appalling use of computers. Christ, if you think that's an appalling use of computers, you don't want to look at my hard drive. Our next bit of archive we've got where we cut across to, to Micro Live. This is, I mean, you talk about like a snapshot of the time. What they're showing on screen is not Pac Man but it sure as shit looks like Pac-Man 
because what happened in the, the late 70s and early 80s was that there were three really successful games and then there were 50 different clones of those successful games as other developers were just like, well, just make me Pac-Man, but don't call it Pac-Man. But make sure it looks everything like Pac-Man because we need the people to buy it because they think it looks like Pac-Man. Just give the ghosts legs. It's fine. Uh, Microlife, BBC Two TV show. Guess what the name indicates, Luke? What's that? It's broadcast live. <laughs> Working with computers in a live environment, particularly at this time, they must have been mad. And they were. There are a number of fairly infamous incidents where things go wrong, or in one case, there was some hacking involved. But it was really cool. It ran from 1983 through to 1987. So, yeah, you know, it, it had some time on screen. And it's a shame, therefore, that this this show that had such long tenure, it is very dismissive of, of video games. It's just like, well, they're all tropes, you know, Space Invaders, Pac-Man, and boy, howdy, he does not like sports games. No, but and it's very... Egregious. <laughs> it's very good use of archives to back up the point that Brooker is making. Um, as someone who recently did a, an archive-based show for, for a YouTube channel, finding that right bit of archive that can illustrate the point that you're making is not, as, not as, that easy of a task. So they're very, very good at the... the clips that they have selected here because we're talking about how video games have got this bad image but also they're this explosion of entertainment that everyone is into but then you cut to the bbc that is like oh this is very silly and this is very tried and this is egregious i can't believe people would be playing at these sorts of things so we are using this now to illustrate the point before we like jump ahead to the jump that video games make as we get into the 90s and then the 90s boom of TV coverage of video games. British TV's disinterest in games throughout the 80s was particularly unfair considering there was a renaissance of homebrew programming going on. Thanks to the availability of cheap, easy-to-use computers like the ZX Spectrum here, a generation of youngsters started programming quirky games with a distinctively British sense of humour. Titles like the Grange Hillam Up School Days in which you played a naughty boy, or the Python-esque platform game Manic Miner, or the groundbreaking 3D Explorathon Night Law. So this is where we get to the era of gaming that I guess was my introduction just by that few years difference. Although I was on the CPC, not the Spectrum, but I do recognise these games. We're talking about School Days, which was probably one of the first sandbox type games. We've also got Manic Miner, which if you don't know Manic Miner and you're listening to us, for God's sake, go and use Google. We also get Night Law, which is a very, very early game for a company that would go on to become Rare. And you can still go and play Night Law as part of the Rare Anniversary Collection and all that stuff. And it is so cool to see them referenced here because even in 2009, when this was broadcast, this stuff was already forgotten by a lot of people. You know, we had references to these games in the opening title sequence. And it's so lovely to see it here. Um... School Days, as I said, original sandbox game. Manic Miner, considered one of the most influential platform games of all time. It was like 1983. Night Law contains a character called Saberman, and this was the third game in the series starring Saberman, despite the fact that it was the first one that they completed. They were just like, no, this is too good. we got to save this. And it was. It was a 3D-ish isometric adventure game. In 1984, being developed by a company, but mostly written 
by Chris and Tim Stamper. Two people. I think one of the key things about this show and sort of the importance of this, and Sonic the Comet, the podcast, have brought this up a lot in, in their time on, on their podcast, is that a lot of video game history is written from an American perspective. I've brought this up on the podcast before as well. Mm. This whole idea of the video game crash of 1983, it is a real thing, and it did happen in America. Yeah. In North America. We did not have a video game crash of 1983 because we had the computer boom of the early 80s. And actually, we had that computer boom that really carried on through the, the 1980s until it was killed by the consoles of the 1990s. The ZX Spectrum and things like that were bigger sellers than and way more popular than the NES was. Talking about Night Law, this eventually got ported to the Famicom disk system. Yeah. That's how big this game was. It didn't just get released on the NES. It got released on something for the NES that only existed in Japan. Yeah. So, like, you know, you, we got names like Tim Stamper there and, like, the Oliver Twins and people like that. Like, we have the bedroom programmers of the 1980s that become, like... The... A lot of brother pairs, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Bitmap brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, this is, like, you know, these are the sort of the heroes of the 1980s that don't really get the celebratory, like, the, the, the plaudits that they should do because a lot of video game history is written from that American perspective where, like, Atari crashed in 1983 and then it was nothing until Nintendo revived the world in, in 1985. And that just, it's not reflective of what actually happened here in Britain, which is why I kind of, shows like this, I feel, are important for the gaming audience because it shows, no, this is actually what gaming looked like in the 1980s. So one of my favorite things about the Rab and Ryan bit that we get later on where they're talking about what retro really looks like. Yeah. And... What we have here is people who grew up as specy players. These are people who grew up with the C64. So this is that's their frame of reference of what gaming is. And like they talk, like you know, Brooker, Daro Brian, I'd imagine there's another one. Jonathan Ross will talk very, very, very passionately about the ZX Spectrum. I mean, while you may know more about it now, I'd imagine that 2009, Luke, watching this. Some of this stuff would have been an education. But it'd been very new to me, yeah, like outside of reading it in magazines. Because it's not like this was featured on Games Master or Thumb Bandits. Hey, we had that one retro feature where Dominic talked to Peter Molyneux in a toilet. But it's not like it was a firm feature of Games Master. Like Thumb Bandits wasn't doing this. Ultimate Gamer wasn't doing this. I was just talking about all of the new. So yeah, so a lot of this is very good educational tools for the history of video games, specifically from a British perspective. And speaking from a British perspective, whilst America was in the middle of that crash in 1984, tying to Games Master, this game, Night Law, was awarded the Golden Joystick Award of Game of the Year, before it was Games Master, when it was just a golden joystick. Well, speaking of Games Master... Segway. By the 90s, games had become so popular TV couldn't ignore them and shows like Games Master thrilled millions with its heady blend of gladiatorial gaming combat and celebrity cameos. And charming sequences in which nervous kiddiewinks begged Sir Patrick Moore's Games Master for assistance in the manner of Oliver Twist anxiously requesting additional gruel. Next. Hello Games Master. Oh, just get on with your question please young man. On European club soccer on the Mega Drive, I can't get enough power into my kicks. What should I be doing? It's quite nice, and it's sort of like a sort of a nice warming hug. 
the first time I watched through this, I haven't seen this in in years upon years upon years. The first, I was watching this on the train, and all of a sudden, Patrick Moore shows up, and the Games Master's back on TV. It's all it's all series two Games Master stuff, so it's the really early days of, of the show. I mean, they've gone for the stuff which I think is what people mostly remember, because we already know there are various people that think there was an oil rig in a church because they just merged one and two together. Then they remember Dexter Fletcher, and everything after that is a question mark. And this is kind of why I think De- uh, Dominic gets a little bit irritated by the consultation zone, because... But being the most remembered thing, you know, we named our podcast after it as well. Very sorry, Dom. It's amazing he talks to us. <laughs> but that's that's the clip they use here. Yeah. Because that is, I think that when you say to game like say to people Games Master, that's usually the one thing people really do remember is the consultation zone. I am amazed that they didn't include a Zelda clip. <laughs> because that was the thing of Dear Games Master on Zelda three, Zelda three, Zelda three, Zelda three. Although I suppose British show European club football. Maybe that's it. I also think it's it's picking a game that is so very specifically mm. like not a known game. Yeah. Like it, it, and as opposed to picking like a Mario three or something like that. No, we as British viewers want to know about tips for European club soccer on the Mega Drive. Ooh, he doesn't like Games World. Cheap spin-off of Games Master, yeah, eh? Cheap spin-off. I mean it does look cheap. Uh, yeah, because it's you know it's in that that circus tent and things like that. Actually, when we interviewed um, the Guru Larry for it, he was like, "Oh, it was a well cheap set. Like you could yeah. easily put your fist through a lot of those uh, the, a lot of the walls." But we do have a clip here from Games World <laughs> that features that features one Dave Perry making his triumphant return to under consultation as he takes on Big Boy Barry in a game of Street Fighter Two. The John Lennon and Bob Dylan jamming. Of Charlie Brooker's generation. Now, Ash, you and I, we have had a lot of time with Dave Perry. Oh, at least six seasons worth. We've spent probably more time with Dave Perry than any of us thought we would have done as men of a certain vintage. We've spent a lot of time in the presence of the game's animal. Here he is, playing Street Fighter 2. He's got a book out about Street Fighter 2. Home field advantage. Surely he's going to do really, really well here. I tracked down the footage, Barry kicked his ass. I mean, like the, you can tell that Dave didn't win this because when they have the clip of Big Boy Barry celebrating, Dave's got his arms folded. As he it's, sat it's, there with it, he's got a proper miserable it's a face like a slapped ass. It's series six Christmas special all over again. <laughs> he was here talking about how it was a setup and how he has been robbed of his glory. Funnily enough, I found an interview from Retro Gamer with Barry. And they asked him, is the highlight of your career beating Dave the Games Animal Perry at Street Fighter 2 on national television? And he's like, yeah, yeah, but it was just another day at work for the big boy. (laughs) And then the follow-on question, have you seen his show on YouTube? No, so it was around from that period of time. Oh no, that period of of Dave Perry. And a direct quote from Mr. Big Boy. He's actually asked me to be on it and get tattooed live on camera while we chat about the old days, but I'm too scared to get a tattoo. Dave's a good guy, and I've got nothing against people who put themselves out there. At least they tried. Better than sitting at home being Joe Critic. (laughs) I mean, fair. Fair. But also very diplomatic. (laughs) He's a smart boy, is big boy Barry. Still, if TV shows featuring commercially available games weren't brilliant, shows featuring completely made-up games were even worse. 
take the scarcely remembered Cyberzone in which Craig Charles looked on as various contestants battled in unconvincing, clunky, tedious and baffling virtual reality games controlled by walking on the spot like you really needed a piss. It wasn't a hit. I, I, I kind of wish we had done this in our timeline, like taking a bit of a sidestep to do an episode of, of Cyberzone. I don't think there was a full episode on YouTube when we got there. Yeah. There is now. There is one. As far as I can tell, one full episode of Cyberzone on YouTube. Maybe we'll come around to it somehow. Yeah, because like this was, it came up in uh, in my office very recently. One of my colleagues, we were just sort of talking about like video games. A lot of people kind of talk to me about like video game TV shows because of this side project that I do here. And Dave just turned to me and was like, "Oh, what was that one that Craig Charles did?" Cyberzone. Yeah, and I was like, and it was like, it was a VR thing because we were talking about Nightmare and like he was talking about how much he like loved watching Nightmare and stuff. And he was like, oh, there was like a VR version of Nightmare, wasn't it? And like, and Craig Charles did it. And I was like, yeah, that was Cyberzone. And it is this sort of like unremembered bit of 90s British TV that was trying to focus in on the video game boom that was like very much taking over the minds of teenagers and, and young adults. I mean, a few years later, and it would have probably done a lot better, as it is, 1993 going on 1994, this was 10 episodes, one and done. But it was from the makers of Nightmare. It was a broadsword production, so Nightmare satellite game Time Busters, which is another one that is mostly missing from YouTube, and the shame because it's got the son of one of the doctors on it. Uh, it's got David Troughton, I believe. But they put this thing together. They filmed a couple of pilot episodes in 1991. Can you imagine a virtual reality show in 1991? Because they were doing like, they did some virtual reality stuff on Games Master Series 2 that was very like rudimentary VR stuff. So this is, it's a big task here. This is a big undertaking. And kind of in the same way that, you know, when you and I did Nightmare as an episode of UCP Extra, there was that moment of like, actually kind of when you take a step back, it's mad impressive what they achieved with 1980s technology. And I think it's the same with Cyberzone here. You know, obviously Charlie Brooks got his snide comments that he's making about it. But this is legit, you know, this is pre-Games Master, kind of in a way, like when it's being made. Well, yeah, because it was filmed autumn of 1992. So I guess just after series one of yeah. Games Master for the actual series, a uh, single series of 10 episodes, as I said, was commissioned by Janet Street Porter. She was in charge of the programming block that this got made part of and started broadcast 4th of January 1993, going out on Mondays at that sweet, sweet time spot of 6.50pm. But this had a network of six PCs all hooked up to each other to do these graphics. 486 PCs, which were at the time bleeding edge, and they had like 20 different virtual camera angles. They added sound effects in real time using MIDI, like MIDI sounds and everything. It was remarkably complicated. And this is from a company that made Nightmare, which was remarkably complicated. When it launched, it got mixed reviews. But one reviewer did say it was bizarre enough to win instant cult status. And they were right on that front. Although they then followed on to say, someday all game shows will be like this. Mm. Yeah, not quite. Tim Childs is still optimistic about it, and he still thinks it's like a very credible action game show. 
And he thinks a second series, if it had happened, would have really explored VR. And if I'm looking at the time frame and I'm thinking, oh, if you then make that in 94 to 95, yeah, it would have evolved. Better. It would have evolved. There would have been commercial hardware they could use rather than just looking like they really needed to pee. Well, look at the, the jump that you have from the VR game that's in Series 2 of Games Master compared to Beach Buggy in Series 4. And I'm yeah. not saying the beach buggy is, is great or anything, but there is a very noticeable leap between the two games in just the two years between the, 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 the episodes airing. So for you know, Cyberzone, it would have benefited from a year, two years, where it really can, could have harnessed that technology and made something really impressive out of it. I mean, as we've covered before, we get from the NES to the PlayStation in less than five years. Yeah. That's that's just just what Games Master like really showed us looking back at it. So yeah, I would have, I'd have loved to have seen something more done with that. But I think they tried yeah. to run too fast. Although the set for Cyberzone did give them a chance to use a lot of B grade set pieces left over from Red Dwarf. Now in 2009, even as Pixel Land grows bigger, more exciting, and more inventive with each passing nanosecond, games are rarely covered on mainstream TV at all. And when they are, there's still that same degree of snooty disapproval. I hate computers. I've never played computer games before and hopefully we'll never play them again. Unfortunately, uh, we skip over everything else. So we can we skip over bits, we skip over thumb bandits, we skip over when games attack and Consolevania and Gamepad because we've got too much other shit to cover in this episode. People like snooty film critics who aren't fans of video games like this fine gentleman. Now, Luke, you must be feeling very conflicted no, at this well, point because I, you do like your commode. I do like... I, well, I, I mean, I, obviously everyone loves to go to the commode. Uh, but I, Mark Kermode is, is, is a personal hero of mine and I've, I've met him a, a handful of times at press screenings where I've had the, 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 the temerity and the, the, the nerve to walk up and have a quick chat with him as a, as a fellow uh, film journalist as I was at the time. But, well, I wasn't really. But I I know that he does not like video games because he's been very vocal about that over the years. And it is one of those things where I'm like, ah, oh, I wish you did like them because, you know, we were talking about with Rab and the Warriors last week. Yeah. I like Rab. I like the Warriors. I want Rab to like the Warriors. I like Mark Kermode. I like video games. I want Mark to like video games. Don't need him to play video games. No, just, 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 just appreciate them as an art form. But he is a, he's a man of film. That's his passion. This one is not his. I do believe he did like the Tetris movie, though. Well, that's a movie. But it's a movie about video games. Yes, but like a movie about video games is different. That's a movie. Movies he understands. The video games and actual playing of video games is something that he just can't wrap his head around. But yeah, so Mark shits on video games from a great height. Moving on. Arguably the first video game was this surprisingly smooth tennis sim created on an oscilloscope in an American laboratory in 1958. Take a look at the equivalent contemporary tennis game, something like Virtua Tennis 2009 here, and you can see just how far video games have come. What we get now is the, the next portion of this, which is almost a, a brief history of video games here, going right back to the start with, uh, with Tennis for Two, and then moving on and on and on up until our modern day adventures. I mean, Tennis for Two is often overlooked, and it's not surprising. It was made in 1958 on an oscilloscope, and it was like used in an exhibition. It was only there for a very, very short space of time. It was designed in only a few hours, and basically there were two boxes with a knob and a button. Use the knob to change the trajectory and the button to hit the ball to get it over the net. It was used in a three-day exhibition. It had huge lines to play it and to see it in action because it was unlike anything that anyone had ever seen. 
It was shown again the following year. They used a larger oscilloscope screen so more people could see. And it was then dismantled and forgotten until the late 1970s when it was used in a lawsuit between Magnavox and Ralph H. Bear over video game patents. Yeah, because Magnavox would have done the Odyssey. Yeah. And I think it was drawn out just to make basically go, well, look, this shit was in 1958. Yeah. I mean, it's a very fun pub trivia quiz question if anyone is looking to uh, to put together a, a good pub quiz on video games because it's it always feels like a trick question that people stumble over. What was the first video game? Many people will look towards Pong, but the the technical answer, Bucky O'Hare is, is Tennis for Two. I like how then he sort of compares you know Tennis for Two there in the in the late fifties, you know, in fifty nine there compared to how we are. 50 years later with Virtua Tennis in, in 2009. And look how far we've come. This is, and this, you know, always happens in video game documentaries where they show like the, it started here and now it is here. And then sometimes do like the reverse of time thing. And then just usually end with that pong of like, boop. So like, and this is where it all began. Here's the bit which I guess is really aimed at the people who don't know what video games are. More than the history lessons we've just had, because we move on to genres, sadly not including a pebble counting game. There's a running gag throughout the show of him making up video games and then being like, and I'm just a big liar. What a liar I am. Although there are some where he's got mocked up <laughs> graphics to go with it, which are frankly hilarious yeah they're so good especially the the Kim Marge one oh I was going <laughs> to say the being polite to neighbours one where he's waving Hello. a remote uh, where he's waving a remote like he's kind of doffing his hat or, or whatever but we just get into this whole discussion of what games are and each game category is accompanied by a kind of demo sprite if you will in a black skin tight outfit doing something and in the case of this first one he's running on the spot and jumping. Platformer, a game in which a player-controlled character jumps between suspended platforms in order to reach a goal. Because we are talking about the icon of the, the video game genre, the platforming genre, because we talk about how like it's started with, you know, arguably starts with Donkey Kong in 82. Important to use that word. Arguably starts with. And then we go through to much more cartoony games. In fact, one's based on cartoons like Tiny Toon Adventures. He does at least choose an absolute banger of a cartoon-associated game. But then the third game he chooses, Ken-chan and Kato-chan, which is a odd little title only released no. for the PC. Well, no, 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 stick with me. It's an odd little title released for the PC Engine and has a lot of, yeah, quite scatological humour, lots of poop and toilets and passing of wind but it's actually a tv license because ken chan and kato chan were big stars in japan you can tell as well just from that like there's there's no other reason for this game to exist other than these two people are are famous on tv as a double act and we now need to put them into a video game where they're going to fart on crabs i mean i'd i'd play it i'm looking at this game now going fairly certain i can emulate this this looks like fun yeah i'm pretty much i mean like the beavis and butthead game is is not that far removed in the 1990s and i'm pretty sure the ren and stimpy game had you know farting on crabs and things like that but their show in japan which uh ran in the mid 80s it was a variety show it was kind of like benny hill that kind of thing morgan and wise <laughs> slightly more farts yeah. but yes and they never advertised the atari they were purely purely a pc engine crowd they had this tie-in game which was based on their antics filled with all the toilet humor and featured them as playable characters themselves it did get a western release 
on the TurboGrafx 16 where it was called JJ and Jeff. <laughs> and you know what? I think the JJ stood for Jeff Jeff. Jeff Jeff. So it's Jeff Jeff and, and Jeff. Jeff. But they also censored it because they were like, well, no one knows who these two guys are and we can't have this amount of farting and pooping and toilets. So they did a whole bunch of sprite swapping and they tried to make it more accessible and certainly something that would be sold in Walmart. But I love that here, Charlie Brooke has gone, no, let's have the, the Japanese men farting on things. Find me the weirdest platform game you possibly can. And, you know, they would have presented things like less to the unlikely on the, the snares or something like that. But this is a perfect thing for, for Games Wipe here. We go, we have Donkey Kong, absolute classic video game. Here's one that's based on a cartoon license in Tiny Toons. We're about to have absolute icons in Mario 1 and Mario 3. Oddly, no Mario 2. We'll yeah, get, I picked up on that we'll, as well. We'll get, we'll get to that in a second. But this is Charlie Brooker's encapsulated here. Find me the weird one. Find me the oddest little platform game you possibly can. And yet, this game, with its Japanese TV tie-in, with its poops, its farts, its people urinating and toilets, is not the weirdest game we're going to discuss on this episode. Not by a long, no, long it shot. it isn't. But we get some looks at Sonic the Hedgehog, and then, yeah. Just like real hedgehogs. Yeah, absolutely. Just like, I, that's great Brookerisms there. It's just like, they go through this jolly cartoon world, just like real hedgehogs don't. But then we have him talking about Mario and Mario 3, and then going into Mario 64 and, and Mario Galaxy. But it's odd that I guess he's not a fan of Mario 2, but, but it turned me a little bit back to that 2009 era when Mario 2 was not as fondly looked at because it's the one that was such a departure. It's almost like, you know, that, that internet age where people realised, oh, this isn't actually a Mario game. It's a reskin of a different game. This is actually just Doki Doki Panic. Another good pub trivia quiz question for everyone. And so Mario 2 became a lot like the adventures of Link or Simon's Quest, the odd sequels that are not as good as the originals or any games that came before it. I mean, it's got actually a lot of comparisons to Castlevania because this period of time everyone's like well Castlevania 1's amazing and Dracula's Curse is amazing but Simon's Quest is a bad one Mario 1's amazing Mario 3's amazing Mario 2's a bad one The Adventure uh, Adventure of Zelda is amazing and Link to the Past is amazing Link's Adventure is a bad one I so I wonder if it's just almost like it's just reflective of that period of time that we were in as, as an internet culture talking about games or maybe maybe he was just fending off the internet because if he'd said the Mario series, they'd have gone, well, actually, Mario 2 was not a Mario game. I mean, the thing is, Mario 2, Doki Doki, whatever, it's a really good game. It yeah. is a very fun also, game. It is a Mario game. And also the design aesthetic of Mario 2 influenced so many of the games that came afterwards, if not in gameplay, but just in design and appearance. Gave us Birdo. I, I think he's including it there either because he's a bit snobbish about it or more likely he's protecting himself because also it's not designed as a Mario game. It was designed as another game and then they slapped the Mario sprites on it. Sure, they made a few other changes as well. That's fair enough. But it wasn't a core Mario game designed by the same team that worked on Mario 1 and Mario 3. No. For that, he'd have had... To, I mean, I'm amazed he didn't just go and the Lost Levels or Mario Brothers 2 Japan. I'm, I'm surprised he didn't throw that little kind of like nugget in. But he didn't. He just focused on Mario 1. 
and Mario 3. And then Mario 64, which Dave Perry never played. And then we go straight to Super Mario Galaxy. Mario Sunshine left out because, again, not the wide, most widely regarded. That's what I mean. I think that's why he skips over Mario 2 as well, because Mario Sunshine, not, not a popular uh, amongst the Mario titles. Perhaps slightly harshly so. But Mario Galaxy was like a real big return to form for the for the series. Yeah. I fucking loved the Mario Galaxy games. I still need to get around to replaying it on the uh, the Mario 3D All-Stars collection. Yeah. Like, I played Super Mario 64 and I played Mario Sunshine and I still like it more than most people, I think. But I just, I got distracted by other things and so I never got around to Galaxy. And I need to amend oh, that. Oh man, I played so much Galaxy. I think it's a really, really fun game. I haven't played as much of Galaxy 2, but... Man, I'd, I'd really, really like Galaxy. Shoot 'em up, a game in which the player avoids attacks while shooting enemies, usually in two dimensions. Well, the man's got a spaceship in one hand and some finger puppets in the other. You can't say he's not having some fun. And there's going to be a very important distinction here because I know that when I was uh, a kid and into a teenager, shoot 'em up to me, I would say that to describe Doom, and I would use that to describe Wolfenstein. But I'm I'm wrong in that because. That should or the sh- the shmup is a different genre of game to FPS, which is what we're going to get to next. And we see a couple of classic examples. We see a Space Invaders. We also see Parodius. I love Parodius. Yep. I love the Parodius series. Super Parodius on the snares. One of my all-time favourite snares shooters. But we then jump forward to Perfect Cherry Blossom with the amazingly evocative description of a firework display being sick. But even then, Perfect Cherry Blossom is actually a subgenre of shoot 'em up. It's what you'd call, uh, was it a bullet storm or similar like that? It is basically it's where and the clip they show there are so many enemy bullets on the screen that it does require incredible reactions to not get hit. Hmm. So the key there is that you do not get those games confused with... First-person shooter, a 3D weapon-based combat game viewed from the protagonist's vantage point. The man's holding a gun and waving it around while pretending to run on the spot. I actually quite like that. This guy doing the little visual representations is really giving it his all. This is, I mean, it's one of my favourite genres of games. Although, as we've kind of covered on this podcast, it needs to be a certain type of uh, uh, shooter. But the the 3D FPS, it's also quite nice for us to look at things like Monster Maze and Mm. like the really early days of 3D environments and walking through mazes and things like that. You got a lot of this on the Mega Drive and the SNES as well. The SNES version of Jurassic Park has these sorts of 3D segments where you're walking through compounds in this sort of like maze-like fashion. And what you're just getting is like janky and jerky 3D effects in your face. I mean, do you know what year 3D Monster Maze was? Must have been like early 80s. 81. Yeah, I was going to say it has to be 81. It's like very early ZX81. And you think it is a, it's a 3D adventure game. Consequently, this man really believes he is in the maze, that the dinosaur really is after him. Don't! I'm a dinosaur, you wuss. I did laugh at this next bit when he's just like, it's so realistic. You find yourself thinking that you really are in this maze and there really is a dinosaur that's coming to get you. And he shouts at this person and playing guy, don't shoot. You really think there's going to be there, huh? You wuss. And then, of course, we cover the next big innovation in first-person shooters, a gun. You would have had everything that you have in Monster Maze, but now... There's something a little bit more phallic at the bottom of that screen that you can point at people and kill them with it. 
penis or gun. Yes, yeah, skip forward a decade and Wolfenstein 3D turns up on the PC. It was groundbreaking in its day for its fast-paced, dark humour and extreme violence, including a bit where you got to kill Hitler. Of course, now it's so flipping basic you can get it on the iPhone, where ironically it's so engrossing you won't notice people sneaking up behind you and shooting you in their head. But if Wolfenstein was the pioneer, the following year Doom became the popularizer. It placed the action in a unique gothic sci-fi environment and it was gorier and most importantly of all it had atmosphere. It may look like a simple bang-bang shooty affair, but in fact, above all, Doom was terrifying, like a horror movie. Groundbreaking is a good word here because we cover Wolfenstein 3D and then we go into one of my favourite games of all time, the metal, metal world of Doom. And we are now revisiting that in the new Wolfenstein. And I remember the new Wolfenstein coming out and people being like, huh. It's a bit shit, to be honest. Now, there are two Wolfenstein games after the kind of original run of Wolfensteins. There was one in the early to mid-2000s, and then there was this one in 2009, which was an indirect follow-on from that. And then we get the the 2013 or so Wolfenstein games. Now, I've played those, and I love those. And I was watching this footage of this 2009 game going, did I play this? Because this looks very drab. The games I play were a lot brighter, a lot more explosive, a lot more cartoony. Hitler kept pissing in a bucket. It was a thing. I found this quite like unique to look back at because I remember the Wolfenstein game from the early 2000s, specifically because it was that game that killed my PC. Literally, the power being pulled from the power supply to the graphics card when I first started it blew the power supply and took out the motherboard with it. I was without a PC for about six months because I couldn't afford a new motherboard. But I think that Mr. Mr. Brooker here is a little unfair in saying that, well, you're playing Blaskowitz, but you may as well be playing a rag on a stick. He's a very important character and has actually been the lead character since Wolfenstein 3D. Not only is he important to the Wolfenstein franchise, but technically he is also important because one of his descendants used a pseudonym Billy Blaze and appeared in the Commander Keen series, and then Billy Blaze later became the father of Doom Guy. So without Blaskowitz, there is no Doom Guy, and that's definitely official canon, that's definitely from ID Software, and definitely not because they kind of recycled some sprites. Remember them talking about that in Masters of Doom, the, the David Kushner book about them always trying to, like, like Commander Keen was such like a, an important title to them, and them trying to, like, work it into as many things as they possibly could looking at wolfenstein here it kind of ties me back into the conversation we were having on last week's episode of missing the point yeah and i think that wolfenstein that the, the, the xbox 360 wolfenstein game misses the point of wolfenstein wolf like that is someone who looked at wolfenstein and was just like oh it is a game about shooting nazis and not realizing that it's also a comedy game and there's levity to it. Like, you know, it's got Mecha Hitler in it. And, you know, yeah. like it's, it is a game that is not taking itself seriously. But unfortunately, this game is coming out in 2009 where Ernest is the onion on your belt. You have to be earnest in your thing, but also you've got to try and be as gory and as out there as you possibly can. 
And it's perhaps people who looked at Wolfenstein and didn't see the comedy aspect and just saw the gore aspect. And were like, oh, that's why people liked Wolfenstein. It's the argument that Paul Anderson makes about Mortal Kombat. He makes the argument of like, people didn't play Mortal Kombat because of the gore. They played it because it had cool characters and a cool story. I don't know how much I fully agree with that, but I think that that can be made an argument of with Wolfenstein. Wolfenstein wasn't just about the gore. Doom is not just about the gore. It's about the atmosphere that you create with that gore and the cool story and adventure you go on with that. And unfortunately, I think what we get with 2009 Wolfenstein is just, well, how gory can we make this? Oh, you could chop off this person's... You can shoot this person and then you can chop off their limbs if you want because that's gory and cool. We're cool, right? It's something they did address with uh, The New Order, uh, the Wolfenstein game that followed it in 2014, that had very dark humour, but did have humour and absurdity and cyborgs and head transplants and and nukes and stuff. There were still moments of... It was weird. There were moments of real drama and tension in the game, and there was moments where characters that you had grown to really kind of love over hours. Like, Brooker here takes shots at the NPCs you interact with that you just get bored with because of the exposition so you start running up and down and jumping and stuff. God, that really spoke to me, that did. That really took me back to that period of time of just walking around rooms, just waiting for the people, waiting for these NPCs to stop talking at you. That sort of thing does happen in the later Wolfenstein games, but they make them compelling characters, which means you do care. Like, you have your home base of operations you might just go and check in on some of the characters. Like your mission with them is done, but maybe someone they know died on that mission. And so after the next mission, you'll go and check and you'll, they won't have any new story for you, but you can check in on them and say like, hey, how are you doing? You know, the dialogue's obviously all pre-written. I like that. And it also gives the game a heart, which I don't think 2009 Wolfenstein had. No, again, I, I think this is just, it's a game that sort of misses the point. Thankfully, what we have here is Brooker to add in his little two cents on this. This is the review portion of this. But he has this thing, it's, it, it's a joke from, uh, from Austin Powers, which is, what if these characters had backstories? But hey, Luke, it's all right. They're Nazis. (laughs) Exactly. And as we've learned from historical documentaries like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Nazis are the bad ones. Although personally, I would love to see a rampaging first-person shooter set on the set of Elo. You know what's coming next? It's TV funny man Dara O'Brien talking about something that annoys him when he plays games. Games will deny you content if you're not good enough. If you haven't earned it, you don't get to see the latter part of the game. That doesn't happen in any other medium. Rarely will a book stop you and go, are you understanding the book? Talk to me about the character's development in the initial three chapters. What themes have emerged? And if you incorrectly answer, it'll go, read the chapters again. That doesn't happen in other medium. If you buy a Claxons album, it doesn't go, your dancing isn't good enough. Dance again. Only then can you hear the rest of the album. If you're playing, say, Gears of War, right, this would be one of my favourite boss levels. The end of the second chapter of it, there's a character called the Berserker, which is this monster uh, who comes out, literally bursts out of a door going, and you have to lure the Berserker to smash through a door. So you stand there and the Berserker sees you, and then he runs at you, and that gives you time to step away, and the Berserker runs and smashes the door. And then you run behind a pillar, and the Berserker gets confused and runs off, and then you run to the next bit. But the next bit's another door. And you have to do it again, but the door is narrower this time. And then you get to door number two, and you think, great, I've got through it. Do you know what's behind door number two? 
there's another fucking door. There is no need for there to be a third door. It makes no sense that this building would have three hallways. And so you go in and you, and you smash the third. Apparently, apparently you've got to shoot them there. I have no idea. I've never got to that because I'm so freaked out by having gone through the first two doors that I have no idea what my fingers are doing. I'm, I'm offering them food. That's what I'm doing. Like I'm pressing the wrong button. And I'm toggling through my inventory menu uh, while this guy is running towards me. I'm scrolling to. I'm picking different weapons. I'm supposed to be ducking and rolling away from him. And the berserker just races straight through me and kills me. The next section we get here is Charlie Brooker invites down his comedy mates to give their their two-minute routine about video games. Or in the case of Dara, one of his two-minute video game routines because he has a couple. There's clips uh, from the BBC um, Live the, the Apollo on Metal Gear Solid, yeah. which he's also not very good at. In fact, all of his comedy routines about video games seem to be about him not being very good at video games because failure is funny. I do believe that he's probably seen way more of these games than he's letting on. Of course. Because Dara is a gamer. Yeah, like Dara's great. And like Charlie Brooker talked about this in uh, an interview when talking about, you know, if they were to do more of this, that he would probably bring Dara back to do some more routines like this. But also bring in Jonathan Ross, because Jonathan yeah. Ross is also a gamer. You know, he like, but it's like, Jonathan Ross, he's got, he's got a Neo Geo. Like, he's really into his video games. He's got one of those Dreamcast TVs where the Dreamcast <laughs> is built into the top of the TV. Those things cost a mint. And what's more, and this is something that will make some people scream, he's had the optical drive replaced with an SD loader, so it's got all of the games on it. And there's some people going, you just took a very expensive collectible and you took the optical drive out! <laughs> but yeah, like this is a bit of a, a Dara routine of how video games keep things away from you unless you get better at them using this example of gears of war and you having to defeat this sort of balrog type thing that's trying to like charge through the doors and you just got to duck out the way and it crashes through the doors you do that three times and then it dies but his whole thing of like but i can't do it on the third one because i get too distracted or too bored by having to do the same thing over and over again and it kills me i've only seen 11 percent of the game there's 89 percent of this game that i've never seen a book wouldn't do this to you you. Music doesn't do this to you. It's only the medium of video games that does this to you. He's wrong on one of those because he's clearly never played a fighting fantasy game. A fighting fantasy game will hide 89% of the book from you. Although earlier in this little bit, I've got a very, very important question because a lot of this episode is based around 2009. We're seeing games from 2009 and before. So some of it is dated. But Luke, who the fuck are the Claxons? <laughs> I had to Google them, and not even a case of, oh, I don't remember much about them. It was just purely, I don't remember this oh, band no, at all. I was at university shortly before this. I would have graduated in 07. So the Claxons were like, a, they're a band that I know. Saw a lot of posters for them as well, like on the, the tube stations of various tours of various albums they were releasing. I mean, did you buy one of their albums? Oh, God, absolutely not. No, no. Like that was that was never my scene. Very popular. It was the style at the time, Ram. Uh, you know, the the university years I was at, but it was never really my scene. I never really fell into the Arctic Monkeys and Kaiser Chiefs era of uh, of music. Well, I can also say the production company didn't buy a copy of the album because that underside of that disc is a writable disc. <laughs> that purple sheen. <laughs> oh, I know that purple. That's sheen. been downloaded from Napster. <laughs> Metallica will be upset. 
He moves on to talk about GTA 4. He's never seen Manhattan. I do remember this mission as being a bit of an arsehole. There are a number of missions in GTA 4 that I would call a bit of an arsehole. In fact, I think the penultimate mission was so frustrating to me, I put the game down for almost a year. Wow. Then went back to it and completed it the first time. Like him talking about GTA 4 here really reminded me of uh, Zero Punctuation's review of GTA 4, which is just that, why is this game filled with so much monotonous bollocks? Like, why am I sat here in actual commuter traffic? Why am I here actually paying toll booth things when I just want to be playing a, a video game? Well, why am I spending so much time taking my cousin out to bowling alleys and stuff so I can keep my friendship with them when I just want to play the video game? Yeah, the bowling alley thing I do remember objecting to. I didn't object to things like the toll booths because here's the thing. You could tear through them, but you paid the price. Same with any GTA game. There are some bits in GTA 5, which is probably the GTA game I've replayed the most, where I've got a really nice car now. If I obey the traffic laws and just keep to the speed limit, I can get this back to my garage. And then, then I've got it. It's not for me. Uh, I don't think I've got the time for a GTA game. Well, because like this is all I ever get presented of GTA 4. I've got no idea what its story mode is actually like. This, and this actually kind of goes back to back, so what Brooker was talking about. All I'm ever presented with GTA 4 is boring, monotonous shite. And it might be a really great game, but anyone, all anyone ever talks about is this or the friendship things that kind of distract away from the, 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 the distraction stuff. I do love the concept of, you know, Dara never having seen... Manhattan and the idea that it's actually 1920s Manhattan, all glitzy with flashing bulbs and cars and, and you know, Nico meets a girl, all his dreams come true, because that would be a hell of a twist in a rock star game. <laughs> right, I mean, rock band, for example. Rock band, where you, you know, is the whole point of rock band is you get to pretend to be your favourite band, right? And you get to, it's all wielding an axe and madness, right? But to get to the ones they promise on the back of the pack, which is like Sabotage by the Beastie Boys or uh, Stuff by the Who, right? You have to, you have to unlock them as it goes along. So every time you play one, admittedly you have to play at an easy level, but you still have to play it. Like, you still have to play maps by the yeah, yeah, yeahs or uh, a song made famous by Mountain. And the Mississippi what No one, that wasn't made famous. No one's ever heard of Mountain. It never made them famous or the song famous. But you still got to play red, red, green, green, red, red, red. I'm not sure. Maybe that's the musician's life. Maybe that correctly mirrors that the musician has to do a lot of things before he can play the songs he wants to play. But in which case, just put in a mode where you have to suck a promoter's cock in order to unlock the later levels. You could use the guitar and you'd be going, ah, and they'd be clicking on the, uh, working the shaft. And then you could just earn the rock, ah, well done, you have got the promoter off. You may now play the songs you want to play. It, but, and, and that's fine. Funny, 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 ha, 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 right? But the point remains, I bought that content. I bought that game because I wanted to play Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. And you, the game designer, are making me play songs I've never heard of, that I've no interest in playing. And you're buying three minutes of my life that I didn't want to spend with Weezer. I wanted to spend it pretending to be the Who, right? That's my content. I want it. Well, I feel like the, the floor is yours uh, for this one, Ash, because this is Dara talking about how songs are need to be unlocked within... Guitar Hero and Rock Band. So I'll, I'll let you take the floor on this one. On one hand, I can see his complaint and I can see that it's justified. 
on the other much larger hand, he's being fucking daft. And this is clearly here for the comedy bit because it is almost like going because like for the rock band um, escalation, like in that first game of like playing through the, the, the story mode, if you will, playing through the different songs, the different sets, building your way up to the big rock ending you have to play through clubs and gigs and go bigger and bigger and bigger until you're playing the massive festival stadium-sized crowds. And that's one of those songs you need to get at the end. Saying you want access to that immediately is a bit like going, but I've got Mario World and I know the final boss is Bowser, but can I just go straight to the end and fight Bowser? I don't want to go through a haunted house. I don't want to go through a chocolate world. It, it's like there is a game here that is designed to have a career mode and realistically if you just play it on easy mode it's a couple of hours and dara clearly has the time to invest in rock band anyway and certainly in other games because he's already playing like gears of war and gta 4 the other thing is with rock band and i say this about guitar hero as well is you may not know the songs you're playing but maybe you should and maybe you'll find bands that you didn't otherwise give the time of day uh, rock band the first really really made me listen more to the band boston because i knew more than a feeling i knew take a ride but i did not realize what an absolute fucking banger for play long time was it's a big epic song and the same is true of others also mountain mississippi queen is quite a famous song it didn't do hugely well at the time but it is classic rock standard in the UK, um, Planet Rock will play it. In America, virtually any FM station that's doing rock will play it. And hey, guess what? Rock Band is an American <laughs> game. So of course they're going to use it. So I get that this is a bit. Like this entire thing is a bit. But it's the only one that irritates me because I'm just like, okay, having to repeat tasks in Gears of War, that's annoying. Having to do stealth tasks in GTA 4, which really is not what GTA is normally known for. That's annoying. Having to unlock progression in a game? That's what most fucking video games are, man. I, I don't think I fully agree with the, the, the Mario uh, uh, comparison because like you don't buy Mario to just like to just get to the, the last level. I, I get the point that he's making, which is just that it'd be nice if the songs were just there and I could just choose whichever song. I could play through the story mode if I wanted to, but the so if I wanted to just play a song at, at random, I could just go and pick the songs that I want to do. So I, I get I get the argument that he's making. Um, well, you know, GameFAQs completely undoes this entire argument because if you do red, yellow, blue, red, red, blue, blue, red, yellow, blue, it unlocks all the songs immediately. But if only he'd known that. If only gone to GameFAQs to find that out. Dara knows how to use GameFAQs. <laughs> so I, I get the point that he's making here. But yes, also, it is just a comedy bit to be like, why are they hiding these songs away from me? But yeah, like I, I, I thought this was this is a fun little bit here because I, I, it did take me back to playing through Guitar Hero 3 in particular. And you just, you know, the next song that you need to play, and it's like, I don't know this song. I just want to get to a song that I do know how to play. And you do discover new music. I discovered Lay Down by Priestess, by, yeah. uh, which is a great song. You then go and listen to the rest of the album. It's like, actually, this is shite, but that's a one good song on this album. I mean, um, that's why they licensed it. Yeah, that's why they licensed that one. But well, I, I, I completely get it as well, because I remember the, the massive disappointment I had with Guitar Hero 3 when like the last song was in the Fire and Flames. I was like, I fucking hate this song. <laughs> And this is what, and it's so long, and, yeah. this is, and it's so long, and this is what I have to end on. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's so long, and I don't like it. But Luke, he also disses Weezer. 
He does this Weezer, which I, I, I can't stand. You know, you can go on about like fucking your, your, your mountain Mississippi Queen stuff. Have a pop of that all you want. But if you're having a pop, of, and it's Blue Album Weezer, i.e. the only good era of Weezer and Pinkerton, of course. But any, any other era of Weezer is a bad era of Weezer. I should know. I'm a Weezer fan. It is the eternal curse of being a Weezer fan where every single year you're like, oh, this will be the year. This will be the year where Rivers gets it and he writes another good album. And every year he fucking doesn't. And then he falls into a trap of just doing, he's like, oh, do you know what? Maybe covering Africa by Toto is the direction we should be taking this band. When I'm out, he was like, no, hold the line is the cover you should be doing. That's the better Toto song. Although their version of Rosanna is comparable to the original. Yes. Welcome to the Weezer podcast. <laughs> It's it's like every other Weezer podcast. It's people being like, why can't they write the Blue Album again? Why is this so hard? Why can't 2023 be the year we get the Bluer Album? <laughs> oh, they tried that. <laughs> yeah, oh, I know. oh, yeah, they tried to do another Blue Album. Simulation, computerised recreation of a real-world activity. Anyway, back to genres. Demo Man is back and he's got flight goggles and a scarf on. He's holding an airplane. Luke, we've got to be talking about sims. Must be talking about simulations, like flight simulations in particular, but also the other types of sims. I mean, didn't we just talk about that with GTA 4 Commuter Edition and Rock Band Promoter for later? <laughs> yeah, we didn't actually talk about how I quite enjoyed um, Dara talking about how like you could use the guitar to blow, you can use the buttons to work the shaft. I, it, again, it's a funny bit. I get it, and I do like Dara, and, you know... He's a, he's, a, he's a very, very knowledgeable, funny guy. But I'm also just like, dude, that's the entire point of the game. <laughs> anyway, simulators. So yeah, we look at Battlezone, like one of the very first sims from uh, Atari. 1980. A, a, a nice tank sim to, yeah. to kick us off here before we get into the uh, much more boring flight simulators. Flight simulators, we've talked about it before. Love the concept. I even played around with the latest Microsoft Flight Simulator because it was free on Game Pass and I had a whale of a time flying over where I grew up and crashing into a field, uh, which... Did that happen near us? No, we did have a small plane actually make an emergency landing once in a field near us. So close to a crash, but not quite. But yeah, it's amazing to see where the graphics were in 2009 and then look at where they are now, where they're pulling real-world data and you can fly all around the world and like see buildings rendered up. It's really incredible. But much more interesting than that is Trauma Center Second Opinion, which I've not played, but I did play the DS Trauma Center. I did play this one. Oh, um, cool. So this was through a period of time when uh, Love Film were, you could rent games as well as movies. So Love Film, for those of you who don't remember Love Film, was a DVD rental service online. So you just rented movies and they sent you them in the post. You would watch them and you just clip them back into these little plastic things and then you'd post it back into, well, I'll take it down to your post office or take it down to a post box and it would get sent back to them. They get a little notification through said, you've now returned this. Blockbuster Online. Actually, Blockbuster did move it to an online thing. That was when I was a student. They moved mm. it to an online thing. But then Love Film kind of took over from that. And so Love Film then started doing games. So I used to rent loads of Wii games as a way to kind of play through them. And Trauma Center was one of the games that I, I rented because I was really curious of it because I'd also played the DS one. And I was like, well, I quite like the DS one. What would a Wii version be like? I didn't like it as much. 
the DS one was felt like you had a bit more control to it. Because you were using a stylus, not a remote control. Yeah. I, it's a great uh, choice here by Brooker to put in as well because it's if you are a uh, a casual you know a, a casual viewer to this and you're like what surgeon the game that's a bit weird that's a bit bonkers but actually as a game it's quite fun I actually really like the DS one it did make me want to go back and play the DS version it did make me want to play the Wii version but I'm like oh yeah that was that was a fun game that was an interesting one I remember I mostly played it on a transatlantic flight I think I got some very odd looks from the person next to me. So like, what, you're cutting someone's what? <laughs> the Sims gets name-checked, as does Farm Simulator. I thought we would have spent more time on uh, The Sims than we do. I don't think Brooker likes The Sims. No, but then that, that gives me even more pauses. Like, I thought we would have spent more time on The Sims. But we do get a cracking joke about Farm Simulator. The excitement of being a Wurzel kicking and screaming into your computer. Strategy, a game which tests the player's tactical decision-making skills. I'm not so fond of the kind of the, the visual representation. He's just wearing a mage's uniform and has some toy soldiers. I'd have thought maybe a risk set would have worked. Yeah. Or even just a chess set. Just a chess set. That would have been something. But we've got name checks here for civilization and command and conquer. <laughs> Described as the less cerebral killing fields. <laughs> you get to be little armchair Hitler. And therefore, Brooker does not like them or you. I would say I've never played a Command and Conquer game from an armchair. It's always at a computer desk. You can't use a mouse properly on an armchair. Come on, think it through, mate. You're sat on a sofa. You think about this one. Super brief on that one. Very brief, yeah. Similarly, when we move into our next genre of puzzle games. Puzzle game. A game involving a puzzle. Which, again... You could have had a Rubik's Cube or something on this one, but we've got a guy literally holding Tetris shapes. But that is really, that's the puzzle game. So like, it's also a puzzle, much like Space Invaders, you show those shapes up, people know exactly what they are. I actually thought it was really funny the way he moves them down. I also just loved the description, the audio description of puzzle game, a game involving a puzzle. <laughs> what we've had is just like, here's what it was looking like and here's what it is now. We started off with very simple things like Tetris to portal a man like really transports you back to that 2009 period where portal was you know the whole fucking thing is like it's not a cake and all like that was well, probably you know one of the earlier internet memes that was sort of there like was a, a song yeah like but you know in a pre sort of like social media has taken over the world era is it cake is like that was on t-shirts you'd go to a convention you'd see people wearing t-shirts that say things like that yeah, Jonathan Coulton, who wrote the song, used it in his sets lots of times. And in fact, I think at the end of his best concert ever uh, DVD and album, like after the final encore, he says there's cake in the lobby for everyone. And the last thing you hear on it is the crowd chanting, the cake is not a lie. Yeah, the cake out. is not a lie. It's great. And it's so lovely to see Portal here. And also Braid. I mean, it only came out the year this was made, but it had been around in rough prototype form since about 2006. It won an Innovation in Game Design Award in that 2006 demo form. And the final version got just as many accolades. Critical acclaim became the highest rated title on Xbox Live. And that's an important thing because this game was initially released on the Xbox Live Arcade service. Basically, online gaming platform and store. Didn't just stop there, though. Went to PC... Uh, PlayStation eventually got it. And even now, an anniversary edition is planned for release on the current generation of consoles, including the Nintendo Switch. 
RPG or role-playing game, an interactive narrative with the emphasis on exploration in which the player's character develops over the course of time. There was not a lot of time spent on strategy games. We moved straight into puzzle games, and then we like just jumped straight into RPGs. And there's even less time spent on RPGs before we move into the next category. It's pretty much just like Final Fantasy VII, Time Sponge, isn't it? Dude's wearing a beard, got a wizard's hat, and he's waving a wand at things somewhat unconvincingly and yeah literally the only thing he shows us at this point is final fantasy 7 from the very start of the game as well yeah and then we immediately move on to the wizard joined by other people for mamorpagus mmorpg massively multiplayer online role-playing game a virtual environment in which large numbers of players may interact with each other i do like that as a visual representation yeah. of just like this is a it's an RPG with a wizard, and it's like I'm a more picker. There's now loads of people, and then I say that was a very nice little thing to tie it all together. And even this, it's just like it's World of Warcraft, really. Soaks up hours of your time as you run around pretending you're an archmage or a bloody lion monster or some shit. Charlie Brooker doesn't understand the appeal, but that's because he hates people in the real world. Why would he want to have to learn to hate them all over again in a virtual one? I, I, I said this on a, a recent episode of Under Console Nation, our community podcast over at, at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod. I got a hatred for World of Warcraft. Absolutely can't stand the fucking thing. Um, although it did create a very good South Park episode, might be one of my favourite South Park episodes ever, uh, a girl left me over World of Warcraft. Adventure game, an interactive narrative in which the player assumes the role of the protagonist. Early adventures may not have been much to look at, but they were incredibly entertaining. The Infocom Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, written by Douglas Adams, is still possibly the funniest game ever made, honestly. But I, I guess maybe there's a little bit more love here in this next section for adventure games, which is just represented by the guy having a book. But that's fair because the first game we get isn't just a book, it's the book. It's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's just text-based adventure. It is a game that is still loved to this day. I know, at least until recently, you could play it online on the BBC's website. It had some nice little graphics added to it as well, just to kind of give some visual representation. And, yeah, what, what, what is it to possibly even say about this game? It's, it's, it's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is insanely difficult. It is possible to lose this game before you've even left the bedroom because if you don't leave the bedroom in time, a bulldozer crashes through the wall and you die. And if you do make it out of your bedroom but you don't get to the pub in time, the earth is destroyed and you die. Sorry, spoilers. And essentially, there are so many points in this game where if you don't do something in the right amount of moves, Luke, guess what? Uh, you, you win. Other one. Oh. Uh, you die. You die. Oh, damn. It's like John Robertson. You die. You <laughs> die. You die. This is what Brooker likes. These are the games that he likes because he talks very reverentially about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Monkey Island and, and all this sort of stuff. He's a, a PC gamer and like a you know a specky kid and things like that. So he these are the genres that he really gets into. He's also a writer. Yeah. And the games he's talking about here, Monkey Island, Hitchhiker's Guide, are known for their exceptional writing. And he does move on to talk about how story can often be a game's weak spot. Yes, story is often a game's weak spot. Here's sitcom scribe Graham Linehan with his view. Luke, we've done this for like 190 episodes now. Something like that, yeah. We've, we've skirted many people that would otherwise be deeply problematic and people that we just don't want to talk about or even refer to. 
pretty much. People that were, you didn't know were wrong-uns when they were referencing them, but have since become wrong-uns. And you're like, oh, it's a bit awkward to talk about them, but it's fine. We can skip past it. We're going to do that again. Which is a real fucking shame as well, because he talks about Zero Wing. Zero Wing's a big thing for me. Yeah. Like, you talk about sort of the, you know, the early internet memes of, like, you know, the, the cake is not a lie and all this sort of stuff. All your base are belong to us. Like, that was... That was my meme of university. The amount of t-shirts I had or stickers or any old tip badges and all this sort of stuff of all your base are belong to us. And going through like um, Newgrounds and all the various parodies of all your base, all your ace of base are belong to us. Yeah. The Bohemian Rhapsody version of uh, all your base are belong to us. I actually listened to that not that long ago, <laughs> and it's still funny. Yeah. It's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. How are you, gentlemen? All your base are belong to us. You are on the way to destruction. What you say? All your base. What you say? All your base. Your base are belong to us. What you say? Signal. What you say? You are on the way to destruction. You have no chance to survive. Make your time. I'm quite annoyed that. It's it's zero wing here, but we're going to skip this bit. To put it as briefly as I possibly can, he invites a sitcom writer on. He basically says game writing is shit because people don't read books anymore. He praises mustaches in Call of Duty, makes sure people know he isn't gay. He doesn't like any of the characters in Call of Juarez. He calls them idiots for saying horrible things, despite the fact they're meant to say horrible things because they're not meant to be nice characters. And he's a fucking scumbag, and he can fuck off. He is a scumbag. Trans rights are human rights. Moving Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Anyway, speaking of adolescent toss rags. <laughs> the main reason games have never achieved mass public acceptance is that the general public continues to believe that most games are aimed at adolescent toss rags, so it doesn't help that some games most definitely are. The most startling recent example being this astonishing cultural artefact, 50 Cent Blood on the Sand, in which the knuckle-headed rapper 50 Cent, or Fiddy as idiots call him, is the hero. It opens with Mr 50 entertaining the natives of an unnamed Middle Eastern country with a glittering concert, where him and his muscly buddies played some records and said some rude words. But oh dear, it turns out the promoter hasn't got the money he owes 50 for the gigs and a subtle battle of wits soon ensues. I don't have the money. It was stolen. What? By who? Men working for a gangster named Said Kamal. Waste this fucker. Fortunately, the promoter does have a Damien Hurst-inspired bling-encrusted skull, which he gives 50 by way of payment. Damn, look at that ice, man. The skull is priceless. You lucky motherfucker. Okay, let's roll. You know, surprisingly, this was scripted by Alan Bennett. You and I were talking about this game like before we came in to record. And you were like, surprisingly, it didn't sell very well, this game. And I was like, which I find remarkable because the, I, the amount of times this got traded in when I was working at GameStation is remarkable. It was traded in so much because 50 cent was this big pop culture figure of you know from the, the mid-2000s within the club and things like that so people wanted to play his video game 
and then they probably got it, realized, actually, this isn't very good, and brought it back to us to trade in. There is every chance, however, that all of the games that we were having traded in were just pre-owned versions that had already been traded in that were just being retraded in by people who'd bought it thinking it was going to be a good game realized it was not and then traded it back in again but crazily it was critically well received so it could either he had a lot of people bribing them probably with crystal embedded skulls or it was actually an okay game unfortunately held back by the fact that it had mr 35p as its star yeah we kind of just get the setup which is 50 cents is entertaining the populace of a Middle Eastern country and the promoter isn't going to pay him. Says he doesn't have the money. Someone stole it. But hey, we get some dialogue and the promoter gives Fiddy a bling encrusted skull as payment. Charlie Brooker briefly appears to say this was written by Alan Bennett, which is genuinely one of my biggest laughs of the episode. Shit happens. His friends roll. They get ambushed and Fifty's skull is stolen by a hot Arabic Lara Croft type. And that's when we get the entire crux of this story, which is... Where'd she go? That bitch took my skull. Bitch stole my skull. That's it. There's your, there's your plot, everyone. That's the tweet. The, the, the bitch stole the skull, and now it's your job to get that skull back. And to find that bitch, in quotation marks, you are going to have to kill about 50 million people in the face... It's a third-person affair, which means you're constantly staring at his ass and breathing in his farts. And Charlie Brooker really does not like 50 Cent. He then basically does a whole prison sexual assault routine about him and says, not only would it happen, but 50 Cent would like it. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> you pussy. This is not the last time that Charlie Brooker goes after 50 Cent. He no. does a very long article about this a couple of years later where he's basically like, I could fucking have you. I could have you. You're nothing. <laughs> I was trying to think when I'd seen 50 Cent live, um, and it was more or less through uh, osmosis because I was at Reading Festival 04. Ah. I, I thought it was around this time. It was actually way earlier than I thought it was. But yeah, Reading Festival 04 because he was on in between Placebo and the headliner Green Day. So they're waiting for, for Green Day to come on. I mean, you'd enjoy Placebo and then you could have a nap. And then it's Green Day. Yeah. So you go see Placebo, uh, enjoy the, the two songs of theirs that I like, and then wait for Green Day. But yeah, I, I have seen uh, 50 Cents live, and uh, I wouldn't have recommended it. This game is not Noam Chomsky's Blood on the Sand, which I wish actually existed. It would probably be far more entertaining than this. And I do hope that at some point, Charlie Brooker was successful in having Fiddy snag his balls on a piece of the scenery. That is one of my favourite bits. Like, he dislikes him so much, he's just trying to cause him harm. That, this, I mean, this is a very funny review. Uh, we were re-watching this early before we came in to record, like, uh, while we were waiting for the people to come out of the studio. And I, this is the bit that made me giggle the most. His, his, his hatred for 50 Cent is very entertaining. But as this is a BBC show, Luke, we don't have a natural commercial break. So we're going to jam one in right here because coming up afterwards, we see two very familiar faces that I could have sworn, I could have sworn, we only talked about earlier tonight or last week, depending on whether you're us or a listener.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And almost as like is a bit of Comfort. There's a fair amount of comfort in the show anyway because it's the same format of news wipe and things like that and screen wipe. But based on the last two weeks worth of content, there's a nice bit of comfort here because Rab and Ryan are here. Retro is not what you think retro is, right? I bet you elsewhere on this show, right, in other parts of the show, people are going to embarrass themselves by mentioning... Attack them as well. I'm attacking everybody, right? People are going to embarrass themselves by mentioning Mario and Zelda. That's not our past. That's no our past. We had a Mario, the great Guiana sisters. That was our Mario, a rip-off of Mario. That was, it was better than Mario. The real British retro was all about innocence. It was all about guys who didn't do it for money. You've got to remember that these, in America, it was big corporations in Japan, big corporations churning out these games, and in Britain, just hobbyists, just guys up in their bedroom. The real British retro, is about games like Hover Bother. In Hover Bother, you were a middle-aged man, right? No, a middle-aged man who just happened to be a spy or a superhero. Just, just a middle-aged man. Just a middle-aged man who had to mow his garden, right? So you would go and get a lawnmower and mow your garden. That's what the game was, moving back and forth, just trying to mow strips of lawn, but you'd borrowed somebody's lawnmower, so your neighbour was coming to get his lawnmower back, right? So you had to avoid him, and you had to avoid an annoying dog as well. Telling my heart's racing. I'd say it's like seeing old friends, but it's like seeing people that you actually just passed in the corridor five minutes ago, and then you're walking back the other way, and they're coming the other way with their cups of tea. It's also nice as well because they're introduced as Rap and Ryan from Consolvania, not Video Gaiden. This is, no, this is the, the lads from Consolvania. That's the popular thing that they did. Oh, Charlie, you big old hipster, you. <laughs> but they are here to tell us about retro. What I love about this segment here is this is Rab and Ryan talking about actual retro. 
This ties in a lot to conversations that you and I have had on this podcast. In fact, actually, on this very episode about this idea of Americanized history of video games. And so, like, the idea of retro is Mario, it's Zelda, it's the sort of NES platformers. Rabbit and Ryan are here to be like, that's not our retro. That's not actually retro. Retro's this. Retro's Chucky Egg. Retro is dizzy. Like that is, and this the actual lots of eggs. Yeah, <laughs> like this this British British retro history of retro. That is what this segment is about, and that's what I loved about it. I love that Rab is kind of quite confrontational about this. He's like, there are going to be people on this show, elsewhere on this show, that are going to embarrass themselves about retro, and I hate that there wasn't, because it would have been really nice. Well, I don't want to see anyone fall and land on their face. It would have been nice if Rab had been vindicated in this. But I love then that he immediately brings up the great Gianna sisters, which is a case of, I mean, there is a game that the first couple of levels, at least, you look at them, that's fucking Mario, mate. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. There was a whole thing of, like, Nintendo gave the great Gianna sisters, which was from the late 80s. It was like 87, 88, that Nintendo sent a cease and desist or that they sued them. They didn't. Nintendo may have kind of like... It may, Nintendo were like the dad with the newspaper where they just drops the newspaper, maybe takes the pipe out of the mouth and raises an eyebrow and they're like, nope, fair enough, fair enough. Because they did that with uh, the Doom guys because uh, prior to doing Wolfenstein, their big breakthrough in like gaming and gaming development and stuff is that they ported Mario 3 to the PC and did it perfectly. Like they did parallax scrolling on the PC which wasn't really like to the same level of quality that it was on a cartridge. Mm. Which wasn't really a doable thing then. And so they sent it to Nintendo very excitedly to tell them, like, guys, we've worked out how to port this to the PC. And Nintendo responded with, well, don't you fucking do it again then? (laughs) (laughs) Cool. You want to do that again? Do you want to walk? (laughs) We'll break your fucking legs. Yeah, it's like, well, okay, we'll make our own game. Sorry, Nintendo, sir. Sorry. If I see a single mushroom in that game. (laughs) Nintendo did influence they did kind of like lean on it there was no actual lawsuit but there was that kind of whole "Mm, yeah knock it on the head so it was withdrawn from sale but this is now the internet everything's out there you can play the great gianna sisters it's a pretty good game it's not mario Hmm. but it's pretty good like a lot of the mario clones from the era yeah they're not mario unlike a lot of games on the 8-bit systems that tried to be a Mario. Well, we saw them in, like earlier on in this episode when we were looking at the like, Pac-Man clones and things like that, that when Pac-Man or Space Invaders were big hits in the, the, the 70s and into the early 80s, basically companies were just like, well, just make me that game, but it's not a yellow circle anymore. Now it's a man. But it's the same game, it's the same layout or the same looking layout. It is just a lot of people saw popular games were like, well, I'll just make it again, but I'll do it with a slight different coat of paint and just slightly rename it. And Bob's your uncle, I'll make loads of money from that. And that's kind of what Rap's talking about here. These The bedroom programmers, these these British heroes, icons within the brothers we were talking about earlier in, in, this, in this episode. Those were our gaming icons. Those were our gaming historians. And... It's it's amazing that there were games created by these bedroom programmers and now those games are appearing on the big consoles. Uh, we mentioned uh, Chucky Egg earlier. 
did eventually appear on one of the big consoles. Dizzy mm-hmm. appeared for Sega Dizzy and Nintendo. Yeah, it was on the Mega Drive. And on Nintendo yeah. as well, although it was the pass-through cartridges, so... Yeah. But they still made it across. There was direct influence. And, of course, some of the publishers of those games went on to great success on the international consoles. Codemasters Absolutely. is a big one. We saw this in our run of Games Master. Like, that... A series 2 and Series 3 era of Games Master, we had quite a few Mega Drive games that were ports of Amiga games. Mega Drive, yeah. I mean, there is there are so many Mega Drive games, and particularly the Evercade shows this, because sometimes you'll get collections of games, and some of them will be from 16-bit console, because they can't use Sega, <laughs> and some of them will be Amiga. And then when you see them side by side like that, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. I wrote about the, the innocence of British gaming. Games like Hover Bother, which we mentioned on, on uh, two weeks ago, in fact, when we did the Consolvania episode, that Rab and Ryan got the film rights to make a movie of Hover Bother. Because in their world, like this is the quintessential British video game. Because it's a game about a man borrowing next door's lawnmower and mowing his lawn. Is it any wonder that Power Wash Simulator is now as popular as it is? Because here we have a game that is literally about mowing the lawn. So nowadays, all that power of the 128-bit, 256-bit, I've lost count of what bits were on, all that power for a power washer. Mm -hmm. Mate, I've been playing Arcade Paradise. That game's great. Yeah, Yeah. fun game. I've got absolutely lost in the laundry cycle. The arcade's there, it's doing great, but I'm like... Got to get that timing on that laundry to get that star rating. Yeah. Jesse Willie's the kind of game that would only be made in Britain. It was about a guy who was cutting about inside his, inside his house, trying to avoid his wife. And the great thing about Jet Set Willie was you couldn't complete it. It was broke. You couldn't complete it, you couldn't finish it. And that's what I love. That's What's more British than somebody making a game and getting to a point in it and going, nobody's going to get this far anyway. Fuck it. But moving on, we get Jet Set Willy, a game which for so many reasons, as Rab says, could only be made in Britain. The name alone, Mm -hmm. meaningless, absolutely (laughs) meaningless. And as is pointed out here, you could not complete this game as originally released. There was a whole section in the attic where once you got there, various rooms would be corrupted, monsters would disappear from different screens, and basically it would, it would, it would just break the game. And Software Projects originally said, oh no, this is just to make the game more difficult, which is bullshit. And they claimed that some of the rooms were that kind of now killed you instantly were instead full of poison gas. Mm. You know, that, that poison gas that's just... Full of games on the spectrum. And in your attic. And in your, well, asbestos, I guess. Poison gas is an analogy for asbestos. They did later kind of hold up their hands and go, yeah, okay, the game's kind of fucked. Yeah. Here's some pokes and codes that actually fix the game. But how many people genuinely actually got that far at the time? Because I remember Jet Set Willy. I was terrible at it. I never got as far as the game breaking bugs. We talked about this uh, in in the in our games master run of that period usually of license tie like the movie tie-in games of the difficult second level and when i say difficult second level what i mean is the impossible to finish second level 
purposefully designed to be as frustrating as possible. Because the idea behind it was you rent it from Blockbuster for the weekend, can't get past the second level, so you then go and you have to take it back, so you then beg your parents to buy it for you so that you can then try and get further in the game. Mm. I was watching recently a speedrun from uh, Summer Games Done Quick uh, through Batman Forever on the Mega Drive. And that is, he's playing through the second level on this. It's like, some of you won't have seen past this level because it's specifically designed to be long and difficult and infuriating. Developers of The Lion King have apologized for how difficult the I just can't wait to be king level is. Oh my god, that, Pur- that level! Purposefully designed to be difficult and infuriating so that you would bug your parents to go and buy it uh, or rent it again. Although they're not, they didn't really want the rental market to work. One last note on Jet Set Willy. Jet Set Willy was a game with an early form of copy protection. Came with a little card with 180 or different colour codes on it. And when you loaded up the game, one of the codes had to be entered before the game would start. And so even though people at the time would copy games, it wasn't piracy, it was just copying. It was very different. Different words meant yeah, different things. Exactly. Like taping one cassette to another cassette. That's not piracy. It's not pirating. I'm, no. I'm, I'm just, I'm taping it. I'm not wearing an eye patch. Yeah. I'm recording this off the telly. I'm not pirating Batman 89. It's just being shown on BBC One and I'm taping it because I can't watch it live. I'm not pirating this Genesis album. I just borrowed it from the library and I'm copying it to a blank tape. Exactly. It's not piracy, Luke. And then I'm giving it back to the library because if I kept it, well, that would be stealing. That would be stealing. I, I'm not, and I'm not doing that. I'm not a thief. Definitely not. Things were much simpler back then, weren't they? <laughs> you wouldn't steal a car. <laughs> but it meant that when you did copy the game, it was, for a brief period of time, bollocal use without this card, until methods were found of circumnavigating that, at which point it became like most every other copyright protection method. Fairly pointless and just annoying. Yeah. Or you would have a game like Penetrator, which was a shoot 'em up and you completed it. You mastered that art of Mapping the trajectory of the bomb so that you became a master of bombing things, which was crucial to finish the game. You'd get to the end level, you'd bomb that big supply of explosives, you'd go magic, you get a fireworks display at the end of the game, go, done it, finally done it, completed it. And then it goes, right, now play the levels backwards. That's brilliant. And you go, aye, all right. Right, fine, aye, right, I'll do it backwards. And then you play it backwards and it goes, now play it forwards again. Brilliant. And then it never ends. It never that ends. Backwards, falls, backwards, falls. Forever. That was the beauty of retro. The charm of retro was that sound, the, the surreal element of it. Um, a game I loved was Marble Madness that had this beautiful kind of plinky-plonky kind of crystal sound. It sounded kind of like a chandelier slowly falling down the stairs. You would roll a wee ball about this map. Beautiful, beautiful kind of wee worlds that you would step into, and they're, they're, all, they're, all, they're all in your memory, they're, all in, they're in wee spaces in your memory, all these beautiful places. And now, games like Gears of War and all these kind of things, they all look as if they're set in the same place, this browny, greeny, muddy, real-looking place. There's nowhere special for them to go. There's no specialness about that. Games are shite. We may have Ryan and Rab on screen, but we've also got a diamondism here with the game called Penetrator. Gee, I wonder why this has been brought up. And this is this game has such a trope of this era of games and going back, which is you get all the way to the end. You think you're going to get a big title sequence. Winner is you. Well done, our heroes. Now you may rest. 
no, Luke, you've got to play those levels again backwards. But then if you finish that, you don't get your fireworks display there either. You just play the level again forwards. Back and forth. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. Ghouls and Goblins had this on the NES. Once you finished it, the game literally goes like, well, if you want to see the true ending, you've got to complete it again. I'm not a fan of the whole, well, you only get the proper ending if you complete it on X difficulty. It's something we've mostly moved away from now. Yeah, I don't think it's anything that really crops up, particularly like with so much discourse around the difficulty of games or difficulty modes being put into games and the argument of we'll just get good. I yeah, I don't I don't think I've seen a an instance of this in years of a different ending on a different difficulty level. So there's different endings on certain games where you make different choices, but that's a different argument. Uh, Inside, with the little indie game on PS4, mm. that's got a hidden secret ending in it. Ooh. So if you play through the game, you get your, your ending, and it's a delightful little like reveal of like, oh, so that's what the game's about. Right at the start of the game, and I only found this out because I was looking, you know, sort of like reviews and sort of walkthrough guys and stuff. Right at the beginning of the game, there is a secret passage that takes you to the end of the game, but it's a different ending that reveals something else about the ending of the game. Oh, I so do like that. I, and I thought, that's brilliant, that is. Because when I did, I was like, oh, so that means X, Y, and Z. It's awesome. You had your own evidence map on the yeah, wall. Exactly. And being like, can you believe that's what this means? And then suddenly my wife, she's like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> can we just watch Bake Off? Can you stop playing this game? This game was freaking me out the entire time. I did not like those banshee things in the water, the little mermaid things. I did not like them at all. This is one of the earliest games we see here. And in itself, it was not an original game. It was a clone of a Konami arcade game called Scramble, which is a much less interesting title. Yeah. As I said, it's featured here because called penetrator diamondism but you know we get shout outs to marble madness here and that games master challenge has never <laughs> was never was. i did have a real pang of nostalgia being like oh we never got this challenge there's only two challenges that are really missing from our games master timeline that marble madness one and the one at the end of that episode of series three that no one has the ending of oh and robocop uh yes i suppose for the gore vhs yeah yeah i do love marble madness i also love spin dizzy which is quite a bit like Marble Madness, but was available for me on the CBC 464. It's that isometric kind of rolling landscape mm. thing. And I just, I love it. This this made me want to play. Rab does it again. I want to go and play Marble Madness. But, you know, we used to have games that were like that. Games that were good. Games that were cool. Games that were innovative. Now we just have Gears of War and games of that ilk that are just muddy, brown, shite. There's that word again. Brown. <laughs> brown. <laughs> I did like this and Gaiden and Consolvania really did throw me back to like religiously watching Zero Punctuation every single Wednesday and the constant chat about it's another fucking brown game. Which is the 2000s into 2010s version of Jazz Rignall going, oh, look, another Another platformer. platformer. Casual games, video games aimed at novice players, often scarcely considered traditional games at all. Well, this is an interesting visual cue for casual games. For those just listening who haven't watched the episode, it's a Wiimote and a plant pot. Yeah, mind out for that plant pot. Mind out for that plant pot. Do you remember like when the Wiimote or the Wii came out and there were like websites dedicated to Wii Gone Wrong, uh, people not putting the wrist straps on and then throwing their Wiimotes at the TV and the TV's breaking and then the people suing Nintendo because you broke my telly. 
And so they had to put like on uh, all the games that came out after that being like, you have to put the wrist strap on. We are telling you, put the wrist strap on your Wiimote around your wrist. I don't like when the game station, we had like Wii's recalled because it was like, these don't have the warnings things on them. So don't sell these ones. It doesn't tell people to put the wrist strap on properly enough. I bet you there were some Wii's. And the reason why the straps didn't go on is because they bought the Wii, they gave it to the kid, the kid pulled the console out, threw the manuals to one side, probably threw the wrist straps to one side, and just went off. So the parents never actually saw the wrist straps. And there were some cases that came out afterwards. There were, kid, there were parents that had just cut the wrist straps off afterwards. So you don't attach the wrist strap to you, throw it at the TV, and you break your TV. It's like, oh, well, I'm currently at blame for this. But if I just snip up this wrist strap with a pair of scissors, the wrist strap broke, mate. Nothing I can do. Oh, that is... That's some that's some grade A horseshit right there. <laughs> some next level shittery right there. I mean, admittedly, there were times, Luke, I lived life on the lid. I did not put the strap around Oof. my wrist while playing with the Wii. But you know what else? I didn't hurl my arm around like a twat. <laughs> and I was capable of gripping the thing. Having worked at Game Station, I was very much a nope, you put this wrist strap on. I am not being for I'm not being to blame for any of this. I mean, I suppose maybe when I think of it, like the games where I wasn't putting the wrist strap on with things like Zelda. Yeah. Where you weren't you weren't lunging around playing Wii Sports. Plus if you're like with uh, Zelda or something like that, if you throw the Wii mode, you've got the uh, the analog stick in your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would just it wouldn't, it wouldn't go very far. It would just fall and hit your knee. Oh, then that would have been a whole separate class action lawsuit. <laughs> different problem then. That's Nintendo kneecapping people again. <laughs> But this is a big conversation around this period of time. That's kind of, I think, died down a lot. The idea of the hardcore gamers being mad at the Wii being successful because it was bringing the dirty, filthy casuals in. And the argument of, is... Ah, fuck. Candy Crush. That's the game I'm trying to think of. Is Candy Crush a, a game? Or is it just a distraction that, and I'm doing a lot of Bucky O'Hare is, this is just for Ash's benefit, the casuals are playing. And then the argument of like, well, no, you're playing Candy Crush. It's a game. You are a gamer. And that are annoying the hardcores even more, being like, no, because that's not an actual game. Conversely, there were some casual gamers that would go, oh, no, I'm not a I'm gamer. Not, I'm not a gamer. I'm, I'm just not play, one I, of them. I just play Candy Crush on Facebook. I'm not Charlie Brooker. My mum would never say that she was a gamer, but she played Candy Crush. She played the shit out of Candy Crush. I know, because I've got so many fucking notifications for her about, your mum has invited you to play Candy Crush, because it gets a uh, 25, I don't know, candy canes or something. Or Farmville, or all yeah, those Facebook all, ones. Exactly. King Games. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the King Games stuff. Absolutely, all of that sort of stuff. You know, are they gamers? Are these games? So it's, it's nice that we get a bit of chatter about that here and this idea that the Wii has made it more accessible for people to play from all walks of life to play games. And, you know, from personal experience, the, the, the last that I was dating at this period of time, they were not a gaming family. They never had a gaming console at home, so their kids never grew up with a Mega Drive, a SNES, a PlayStation, or anything like that. But they fucking loved the Wii. And that was their Friday and Saturday night was playing Wii Bowling. They absolutely loved that. And uh, her mum loved the Just Dance games. Mm. I would then say, I was like, oh, because you're gamers now. And they were like, oh, we're not okay, no games. We just play this. It's like, well, it's a game. And you're playing it. We had this with Rock Club and Rock Band in that we would have, when we were running off Tottenham Court Road, particularly in the Royal George, we would have people turn up 
who were basically, they just originally came downstairs because upstairs was full at that time. And they were like, well, there's a few seats down here. And it was quite early. And they would just sit there and drink. And then they get curious about all this nonsense going on on stage. All that noise. <laughs> and then maybe they'd go, well, if I sing a song, will other people take care of these instruments, like the plastic guitar controllers? And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Jeff wants to get up and sing, I don't know. Hooked don't, on a feeling. Hooked on a feeling. There we go. Anyone want to play guitar? Cool, you're playing guitar. You're playing bass. You're going to give drums a go. Good on you. And that's how it starts. Then they'd have a few more bevies. And then they'd be like, I think I'll give that guitar a go. That looks like fun, actually. Yeah. Do you have any Dragon Force? And that's where it would fall apart because (laughs) suddenly their fingers would be breaking. But they would probably not consider themselves gamers, even though they were playing a game. And not only that, they were playing a multiplayer cooperative game at that point. They're playing a game that the hardcores would consider a proper game. But Wiimotes for cooking mamas, that's all very well and good. But Luke, what if we just don't want a controller to throw at the television? Oh, what if we had, you know, just this black box thing that sits on top of your TV where you, you're the controller now. And I know what you're thinking. Isn't that the eye toy? And you're like, well, yes. But this was Xbox doing it a lot later and slightly better. Witness Project Natal from Microsoft in which the controller is you. Here we see the outright creepy promotional video for Project Natal in which it seems you have to sort of groom a boy called Milo. Hi, Milo. How are you doing? Hi, Claire. You okay? Actually, I'm a bit nervous. You? Nervous? I don't believe it. Presumably, instead of a high score table, there's some sort of offender's register. Quite a bit better, although still kind of arse and still never quite delivered on the promise. Even the second version of Project Natal, a.k.a. Connect, Never quite delivered. But what fascinates me with this, as it appears here, is how they choose to highlight it, which is with a little freaky dead-eyed CGI kid called Milo. What is this game? This looks like it's a game that, that Charlie Brooke has made up. Sadly not. Now, this was, by most people's reckoning, including a lot of the people involved, this was a tech demo. This was showing how the technology could be used, how AI could be used. You know, all these kind of ideas and various ways that things could be put together. And then Microsoft unveiled Project Natal at E3 2009. And that's where we got the clip that we see here of this woman naturally interacting with the virtual character. And after that demo, despite all the various... This is just a tech demo. This is just a tech demo. Someone in a press conference, confirmed that this was the formerly known Dimitri and it would be a game developed around Kinect titled Milo and Kate. And in the game, players would interact with a 10-year-old child and a dog named Kate playing through a story. Now, this was a complete bullshit claim. It's been debunked later. Who would make such a claim in the video game world, Luke? Oh, I mean, Bob, Dave Perry, maybe. No, no. We have had him on Games Master, though. I mean, it's Molyneux. It is Molyneux. Of course it's Molyneux. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I, was, I was trying to rack my brain. I was like, who else could I name drop before I say Molyneux? <laughs> it's Molyneux or Molyneux or an outset. It's Molyneux. Yeah. Who probably told it to Dave Perry. He even went so far as to say that it would feature an in-game store for purchasing items to enhance gameplay. So not only was it a bullshit game that never actually existed, but also it had bullshit microtransactions that thankfully 
never existed. It would have been the very video game embodiment of, but look, Milo has a new hat. The lasting memory I think people will have of the Kinect, and funny enough, we will get to talk about this again uh, at some point soon, is that Star Wars game. The Star Wars dancing game. Yeah. That is what the Kinect is remembered for, I feel. It is having Han Solo doing shit dance moves to Solo by whatever his face is. Or, or Darth Vader breakdancing. Yeah. It, it's, the Kinect, to me, kind of fits in the same box as the PlayStation Move and the iToy. And I guess particularly the PSVR 1. I'm not going to pass judgment on the VR 2 because I've not used it, which is it's a great idea, but a lot of people don't have the space for it. I had a Kinect for the 360. The sheer amount of furniture that had to be moved or tipped on its side in the living room to give a suitable space. In America, maybe that's different because living rooms are bigger. But here in the UK, I think that's a, that's a big old issue. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't think of many friends' houses who would have had enough room. Like, I mean, we had the iToy. Uh, I bought secondhand after I got out of university. Well, just before I went to university, in fact. Uh, it was before I went to university. And we, like, we had, like, an, a night playing it for, you know, once, which we thought, like, this will be a fun way to spend a Friday night. We'll play, you know, use the iToy in that. And even then, like, in our living room, which wasn't, like, tiny... It was like, make sure you've got enough room around you. As computers and consoles grow ever more powerful and the games market grows ever more diverse, so there's an increasing number of games that fit about ten categories at once or none. For instance, how do you define the bizarre Windham-up flower in which you control a breeze blowing petals around? Or the serene safari photography game Africa? There are countless pacifist titles out there, but the broadcast media tends to ignore them in favour of highlighting more violent fare. So basically, hybrid games, mostly ignored by the press, because why would you talk about something new, unique and creative when you can just focus on stuff that's going to be controversial? Yeah, we are moving into that, uh, the idea of video game controversy now and the media focusing on certain uh, items that will anger and annoy people, stir up, you know, the anger from the right sorts of people that will ask to ban this sick filth. And we're shown a couple of examples of non-controversial hybrid games. We get Flower to start with, a game that I'm familiar with, but I haven't played. But one thing I am familiar with is that later versions of the game were published by Annapurna Interactive, which is a name that I'm seeing a lot on games that make me go, ooh. Yeah. Stray. Yeah, a lot of sponsorship for uh, Games Done Quick. They're even the ones that are actually attached to the new Blade Runner game that's due out as well. Yeah. And they just seem to be people, much like at the moment Team 17, that are picking up games. They're not AAA titles, but they're interesting titles. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate it. So it was nice to have them attached to a game that we see here. The other big game that we see is Africa, which elsewhere was actually known as Hakuna Matata. <laughs> Don't think the, the Lion King tie-in was in any way official, but it was Kind of like Pokemon Snap, but more realistic. Yeah. You're just going on little jungle safaris or desert safaris, uh, perhaps, and just taking some photos. This game looks quite pleasant. Play a, a nice way to spend time. I don't yeah. think you, you wouldn't play it for hours or weeks on end, but you might have a fun couple of hours on it. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure. I'd, again, that's a budget title I'd consider buying. I would. It would have to be a Pokemon Snap for me to consider it to be a full price purchase because at that point I might have some attachment to the franchise. That's what you're looking for. Or maybe I really like Lions. Yeah, I was going to say, no one has a real attachment to the franchise of Lions. Um, no. No. 
So yeah, so because the media won't focus on games like this that are nice, and will instead focus on the bad games, the ones that will get people angry, because TV has to try and find the baddie. Or, you know, newspapers want to try and find the baddie. If something bad happens in this world, I wrote a thing on this in my, you know, GCSEs. If something bad happens, people look for something else to blame. Little kid dies uh, by the hands of two slightly older kids. Well, it couldn't have been the parenting or anything like that. Must be Child's Play 3. They watched it on VHS the night before. It's the only explanation we have. I mean, going in reverse order, we've got... Uh, social media, the internet, then we've got video games, then we've got video nasties, then we've got rock and roll music, then we've got uh, film and TV in general, then we've got comic books and also rock and roll music again, then we've got, I don't know, Conkers, maybe, Uh, then we've got jacks there may be dominoes dominoes were really big there always has to be a scapegoat there always has to be an overriding arch villain for the moralistic brigade to get behind to you know there has to be someone to wave the flaming torches and pitchforks at and i will say there are cases where those individual items or those individual forms of media do hold a level of responsibility for that individual But that doesn't mean they're responsible for all. And of course, all it takes is one case where someone goes, it was the video games that made me do it, where that suddenly becomes the defence, whether it's true or not. Because if you committed a crime, if you went done a murder and they raid your house and they take away all your stuff and they find all of the Grand Theft Auto games and maybe the 50 Cent game. Now, if the newspapers get hold of that, it will be killer played video games. Yeah. And immediately your defence lawyer is like, well, there's a defence we can use. Yeah. It doesn't work quite that simply, but it has happened. And then it becomes a case of, well, is this person on trial or is this entire media on trial? And it, it's really easy to do. And it's lazy. Yeah. It's looking, it's looking for someone to blame for changes to society as a whole. They're a symptom, they're not a cause. As I wrote in my GCSE paper when I was a, a wee, but a wee nipper, it's society looking for something to blame because they don't want to blame themselves. Uh, and it, oftentimes it works. I've told the story on the podcast, well, my mum did not want me watching Power Rangers because she was worried I'd jump out of a window. A friend of mine's mum, when we would rent horror movies on a Friday night, said you can rent any title you want, absolutely anything off the in the horror section, no matter the certificate, you can rent anything you want. You cannot rent Child's Play. As a hard no, you can rent anything, that not that one. What's that? I spit on your grave? Well, it's not Child's Play. That's exactly it. We could we watched some horrific shite, but we could not watch Child's Play. They would not have us watch it. What's this? Showgirls? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we did rent Showgirls. <laughs> Of course Frequent we did. Flyers. Of course we did. We were there to, uh, you know, we were saved by the Bell Kids. We, what we get here, though, is not just, you know, like, you know, the outcries, the usual suspects, and we will get to some of the usual suspects. You'll never guess what game comes up in this, but in this section here. But we also get some of the Atari porn games. Here's a rare example of an early commercial controversial game. Beat em and eat em on the Atari 2600 in which you control two naked women there at the bottom of the screen. You have to move them left and right to swallow semen being ejaculated by a man on the roof. It's 
basically just simulating an average Saturday night in Plymouth. When the Atari hit big in America, and a lot of people could develop games for it, and Atari did just release any old shite on it. Also, there were a lot of like underground games that weren't released officially. There was a huge swathe of Atari porn games. Brilliantly documented by the angry video game nerd way back in sort of the mid-2000s with his video, Atari Porn. Doesn't often get reloaded up to YouTube by uh, by James Rolfe himself because it often just gets taken down immediately. But it did feature some of the games that we see here, like Beat 'em and Eat'em. Uh, uh, uh. Mystique presents Swedish erotica Beat 'em and Eat'em <laughs> To his friends. <laughs> <laughs> this game features two naked women who have to catch, for want of a better phrase, man juice mm -hmm. that is being sprinkled from the top of the screen. Yeah. That's the game. That's the game. Don't let it fall to the floor. You need to get as many points as possible. Now, you may be thinking, but that's a bit sexist. And you might be right, but don't worry. There's a gender-reversed version as well, isn't there, There Luke? certainly is, which features well, mother's milk, you might say. <laughs> yes, Man with an erect penis going backwards and forwards, catching lactations in his mouth from a pair of bosoms. It's called The Philly Flasher, which, I'll be honest, is actually a much worse title because I'm not sure it makes much sense. Whereas at least Beat 'em and Eat 'em, whilst terrible, kind of makes sense. Uh, the Atari was full of these. General Custer is, is quite a famous one. Oh, bloody hell. There was a swathe of these games. Uh, yeah, banned games on the Atari, more or less. These underground games. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween and all these sorts of games that weren't like... In some cases were official releases, but some of them were just like... It's an Atari cartridge that's got some masking tape on it that's got the title written on it. Although one last kind of level of diamondism to this is there was actually the possibility to get both Beat'em and Eat'em and Philly Flasher, or Cat House Blues, depending on where you saw it, on one cartridge. And even better than that, the cartridge was called a double ender. <laughs> it was the Mario Duck Hunt of its day. <laughs> it really, really was. I did also miss out a vital gameplay difference between Beat'em and Eaton and Philly Flasher. Uh, when, in Philly Flasher, the men, who were convicts, caught the milk in their mouth, they masturbated furiously. Oh, yeah. Well. It's a key difference, Luke. Yeah. There was also a homebrew version of Beat'em and Eat'em developed for the NES <laughs> in 2014. Yeah, it's off the back of, because a lot of these games found popularity again through James Rolfe and the Angry Video Game Nerds coverage of them in sort of like the mid to late 2000s. It kind of like, it, it, uh, I wager, it certainly was for me, it was a lot of people's first exposure to these sorts of games. And because of that, they became very famous. James Rolfe is kind of, magical in that way i know a lot a lot of people love the work that, that rolf has done with through abgn but he kind of has made some games legendary now games like beat him and need him for example or you know uh dr jekyll and mr hyde on the nez there is like a, a a certain like section of games that have become avgn games or games that people know about because of avgn i think a lot of simon quest hate comes from James Rolfe's dislike of Simon's Quest. Mm. And because of, like, of his coverage of it, other people are like, oh, it's going to be really funny. Let's port that. Let's find it. Let's find the source code and everything. We'll put it on the NES. Because then it will show up on algorithms yep. and it will get hits and people will retweet it. Maybe he'll retweet it. Exactly. But we do go on to the fact that actually a lot of the really explicit games, they never got 
you know, double-ender releases. They never got proper commercial releases at all. They lived, like all good muck, in the small ads and the classified ads. Like, the game we see here, the Portuguese game, quite horrific Portuguese game that I'm not really going to go into the details of, but that was called Sex Crime. That literally could only be ordered from the back of a magazine. Yeah. And also... I did find the title screen art for Sex Crime, and I've shown Luke it once already, and I'm just going to show him again. Yep, there it is. It's just a <laughs> massive pair of boobs. And it's, it's a Sex Crime. It looks like, I mean, you know, describing this for the listeners at home, the Sex Crime title looks like it was drawn on MS Paint. Just free hands. And so does the naked woman on it. Very well, though. Like, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good rendering through MS Paint. It, it is very good, although may have been the early work of a Rob Liefeld looking at the proportions of the body. Ha, oh, Luke, do you know what? It's really nice to have a controversial video game section without... Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> MPs have criticised the makers of a new video computer game after reports said it featured the mutilation of women. One MP said it shouldn't be sold in this country because it would have a bad effect on children. One sequence in Night Trap in particular, in which a girl is stalked and seized by ghoulish figures, then put in a metal clamp around her neck and dragged off screaming, has provoked a hostile reaction. Despite the hostile reaction, Night Trap was actually a fairly daft and broad horror movie spoof in which you played a CCTV operator trying to spring traps and save women from some stupid alien intruders in masks. What it undoubtedly wasn't was an educational tool aimed at teaching children to maim and to murder and to mutilate. Only an idiot could possibly think that it was. It's absolutely outrageous to teach children to maim and to murder and to mutilate in the way that this video undoubtedly does. The more the later we get in time and the more we get these night trap clips replayed. Oh my god. The more and more it's just a case of how did anyone take this seriously at the time because they never played it. Like this is like Night Trap is the greatest example here because and this is one of the great strengths that Brooker has. Brooker shows you this is what the news coverage of it is. And then very calmly doesn't say, here's what they got wrong. He just says, here's what the game is. Here's the news coverage of it that says, this is a game that is about abusing women and capturing women and doing horrible things to them. And then he cuts Charlie Brooker said, it's a game that's about you taking on a CCTV operator who's trying to stop these women getting assaulted by vampires in a very silly, schlocky 80s horror thing. Can't imagine anyone would be offended by this. Cut to people being offended by it. This game, really, even at the time, is about as offensive as a Save by the Bell Halloween special, maybe with a drug PSA mixed in. Yeah. Oh, not original Save by the Bell. Save by the Bell, the new class. So it is a bit edgier. Yeah. And But what happens here is that someone is told, this is a game that's available on the Mega CD, and it's about uh, abusing women. And you're like, oh my God, that is horrific. We need to ban this sick filth now. With a, sh- a shred of thought of, maybe I should play it. And see and see what it's like to play. I mean, credit to you know, like the people who were uh, rallying against Mortal Kombat back in the day. At least they played Mortal Kombat or watched footage of Mortal Kombat. These fuckers here were just told third-hand information about something, and had decided it was now their mission to get this sick filth banned. This is the Mary Whitehouse equivalent of someone asking Mary Whitehouse, you know, have you seen? what you're complaining about and she's just like i don't need to see something to which the answer is 
Yeah, yeah you, you do. Yeah, you kind of do a little bit. It's hard to form an opinion on something you don't know anything about. It's like a judge in court going, I don't need to see the evidence. <laughs> guilty. I've been told what happened, therefore guilty. I read it on the Twitter. We see a couple of different idiots talking about this, and I use the term fairly loosely, but they are idiots. And then we see a young kid who I feel was being very much led because he starts by saying it does change behavior a lot because like if your mum and it's the fact that he starts with a very well-formed adult statement means that what he was asked was do you think it changes your behavior and so it's the thing of you ask a question and you hope that they parrot back the end of the question to make a nice Mm -hmm. nice well what it's used as here a a, a, a quotable yeah Dominic Diamond would call it the Dexter Fletcher style of hosting. And he says, like, oh, well, you got to do your homework. I'd say, no, I'm playing my Game Boy. Wait till I finish my game. I'm fairly certain I say that to my mum, except it wasn't about the Game Boy. It was about He-Man or Thundercats or the real Ghostbusters. Oh, no, I just want to finish watching this episode of the real Ghostbusters. To which the answer would be no. Do your homework. Do your homework. You should have recorded it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hard to, to, to defend on, on some of this as well because my parents did ask me to try and study for my GCSEs. And I was like, well, no, I'd, I'd really rather play Final Fantasy VII. And, we, and like, bless them, they tried. Like, we put together study plans and everything, but what they could not account for was that I'd rather hang out with Cloud & Co and find out what they're doing this week. My wife and I have had this conversation, though, because I've got a very different approach to studying and exams than she does. Whereas I'm like, exams are fucking useless. Like, it's a complete waste of time. Like, it is it is not actually about learning things. It's about learning how to pass a test. And I think that's a complete waste of everyone's time. I'd do away with them if, if it were up to me. But my wife is like, I get your point and I take your point. But it is the rules that we have to follow. It is the only way she would pass things. So we have to do it this way. It's like... Well, fair, I get. Well, we'll have this conversation again when we get to it. Back to video games. We've had our controversies. We've had our violent video games. And there's a lot of things that video games can be blamed for. There's a lot of things that they may actually be responsible for, but at least they aren't implanting subliminal messages <laughs> that could influence children. Oh, for fuck's sake, this again. A computer game that sends out subliminal messages has been condemned as manipulative and sinister. Uh. This is the game that's causing alarm among parents. Really? Really is it? What they're trying to do is to affect the child's mind beneath the level of consciousness. And that seems to me an immoral thing to do. Yeah. Outraged of peas pottage on the BBC again with Endor fun. (laughs) Here is a game that I never thought we would talk about again. I actually had to remind myself we talked about it in the first place. Yeah. There are games like this around today. It's the same as the porn games from the back of magazines. These are not actual proper games. These are the shareware, the freeware, the mail-in. If you're looking for this sort of thing today, probably itch.io, which seems to be where a lot of the kind of games live. Mm. Or behind Patreon paywalls, uh, patreon.com forward slash under console pod. We don't have any adult content there, but it's a free way to plug. It's an easy way to plug things. Yeah, you can hear next week's episode if you fancy it. One week early and ad free. Absolutely. We see Schoolyard Slaughter, a simple offensive game. Players earn points for shooting schoolchildren. That, as, a, yeah. as a game, 
goes, this was in bad taste at the time and it's only got in worse taste since. And there will be other games, some games which probably only exist on internet forums that are doing exactly this thing now. I was going to say, these games will still exist to this day. You just won't hear, see people talking about them in big public spaces. But it's you know designed to just like, what envelope can we push? What controversial thing can we do this week that hasn't been done before that might get a few chuckles out of some people for 30 minutes? Flash games used to be rife with this say, stuff. Newgrounds, man. Oh, Newgrounds man. was full of this. You Newgrounds is still out there. Is it really? It's still running. No. Yeah. Does it look the same? I mean, it's not too dissimilar. It's just, it's just more like, it's more modernised. Hey, look, why fix what isn't broken? There's less brown on it. <laughs> well, this isn't the 2010s after <laughs> all. I, I love this style of Brooker, which is where he perfectly cues up the next clip by just saying what they're about to say. But don't ask me, ask someone who'll be horrified by these reports. I'm horrified by these reports. And I say this as a gamer, but dear Lord, we really don't help our own situation. This is a lot like wrestling shows interviewing wrestling fans before shows. And you're just like, oh no, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not like that, am I? I mean, I don't think I am, but, but what if I am though? What if I just don't know that I am? I mean, the answer is, you probably are, but you might not be that. <laughs> That's the whole point of games is to be realistic, but not be so like, realistic at the same time. So you can kill people, but not think about it in the morning. Horrified, uncomprehending adults claim that this obsessional solitary vice is producing a generation of teenage mutants suffering from a form of cultural autism. Children get so hooked that beating their last high score is all that matters. And my cousin, my little cousin, bro, every, every time I go in his house, he's playing the game. He must, he thinks he's, um, the man on, um, streets of range. Every minute he's beating me up, bro, and he's saying, yeah, and then all this, um, Another inarticulate gamer. Why can't they ask someone, I don't know, a bit more middle class? As well as playing about two hours a day, Matthew has also managed to pass grade three piano, and he claims to enjoy a bit of Dickens. He seems the perfect, well-rounded ambassador for the games he plays. Oh, he's only about two, but who knows? Maybe he'll say something cute. A beat 'em up is um, a game when, um, where you beat people up. Um, you um, punch them or kick them and um, jump on them, um, break their necks, um, smash them over the head with bottles. And you like, you know what? They would have interviewed probably thirty kids on this day who would have given nothing answers, and we know they give nothing answers. Look what Dominic Diamond had to say about asking kids about their opinions on video games in that Edge magazine article that he did, or the interview that he did rather. Would have just been like that they given absolutely nothing answers, but then I found that one kid that'd be like, "My cousin beat me up because I beat him on Streets of Rage," and then it'd be like, "Right, that's the clip we're using because that backs up the argument we're trying to make." It's like when you used to get those kids say the funniest thing segments. They wouldn't show the five hours of the kids just picking their nose or going uh or asking to use the toilet no they're just focusing on little jimmy saying that his dad goes to the shed and locks the door behind him or something and he doesn't know why but he sounds like he's hard at work in there as someone i know was on a show like that in the 90s um ronnie corbett's one where like you know you ask kids questions and stuff. yeah uh he was on that and they'd edited it around it so they asked him a question, where is the brain kept? And he points at his forehead and he said, the skull, to protect, it's to protect it. And what they asked instead was something else. 
about I can't remember the question he asked now, but it was something else. But edited in his clip of being like, it's the it's the skull, it's to protect it. And then comes to Ronnie Coleman being like, oh, 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 some of these kids really don't know much, do they? And like traumatized him. Like on it, like horrifically bullied at school because people thought it was a big old thicko. Oh man, that's harsh. It's harsh. And like, you know, it would not it would not happen now. Like no. you would not get away with it now. But hey, Luke, we've got one last saviour. What if we ask someone who is a bit more middle class? Well, he enjoys a bit of dickens. He certainly does. Diamondism. <laughs> Diamondism. Yeah, I mean, his answer sort of falls apart a little bit, really, where he is very distracted by whatever game he is. And he's just like, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, you beat him up and, uh, you, know, then, uh, you know, then they beat you up. Then you break their necks, yeah, no. and smash them over the head with bottles. Good job, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, good great, job, great job. Spokesperson of our generation. Oh, it's brought back like research I was doing when I was writing up the Mortal Kombat chapter for the book and watching through news coverage of the time and seeing the interviews with people like from that period of time that were just like, "Tell me about this Mortal Kombat game," and then they'd give you this, this answer about like, "Oh, it's great when you rip off the person's head and you see the spine dangling down," and they find like a you know, six-year-old that says this and stuff to make it sound like it is brainwashing our poor children won't somebody think of them beat em up simulated combat game in which the player leathers the stuffing out of people so beat em ups for which we get two dave perry cosplayers fighting <laughs> yeah this is a, a you know a good argument of sure it may look like this is just you knocking seven shades of shit out of each other but some of these games do have slightly more complex things to them you and i know this very well from our time on games master virtual fighter is more than just smashing some buttons together tekken is more than about just punching someone in the face killer instinct these are games that are actually very technical and you've got to be pretty like, pretty smart pretty switched on to be able to get through this i've been watching a lot of people play street fighter 6 recently i've been watching more people playing it than actually playing it myself and i've been watching friends of the podcast ketchup and mustard streaming it and like workshopping Blanco and like showing all the things and talking about frame data. And I'm just like, I just want a Hadouken. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I want to do a big Hadouken. All this other stuff is just lost on me. And I wish it wasn't because I want to be good at these games again. Yeah. And I'll, I will muddle my way through Street Fighter Six, and I'll still enjoy it. At the base level, you do just run around punching people, like either, you know, in a scrolling sense or in a 1v1 sense. But... To truly get good at the game, it's a combination of memory, muscle, reflexes. It, there's, there's a whole shooting match of, of skills required to be truly good at a beat-em-up. Even a game like Mortal Kombat, which to an onlooker might seem unnecessarily violent. Yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah, and, and it was as well. You know, I know that like Anderson made the the, the the defenses of like, oh, people didn't really play it for the violence; they played it for the story. I don't buy that for a single do, second. Do you know what? You, you've used that quote a number of times over the past three years, and every time you say it, <laughs> my brain just goes, "Man, that sounds like an even bigger pile of horseshit than the last time Luke mentioned it." <laughs> Every time you say it, I believe him less and less. I, I know. And when he said it to me the first time around, I was like, oh, I could buy that. And I just don't because I'm now going You were back. caught in the moment. I was caught in the moment. I'm speaking to Paul Anderson, right? But like, you know, like now we've done this podcast and stuff and we, I'm looking at the, the footage and I was like, no, this is what people were talking about. It's like when he says about there being an R-rated script for the first AVP movie. There never was... I know one of the guys that was involved in production design from day zero. Oh, yeah. And he said to me, there was never an R-rated Alien versus Predator Absolute cut. Absolute 
bullshit. There was a slightly harder PG-13, but even that was trimmed back. Yeah, that is done to save face with people who are annoyed as PG-13. Grand Theft Auto is a game in which contestants can rise through the underworld by performing jobs for gangster godfathers. Points are awarded for murder, arson and drug running. Yes, the granddaddy of all controversial games is a British creation directly inspired by the pioneering Spectrum game Turbo Esprit. The release of the first GTA game at the height of media hand-wringing over joyriding ensured plenty of coverage and even caught the attention of the Home Office. Under proposals being considered by the Home Office, a health warning would be flashed up on the screen at the start, reminding players not to drive like this on the roads. The freedom to do what thou wilt in GTA's virtual environment sent the popularity of a fledgling genre into overdrive. Anyway, we get Jeremy Paxman again, <laughs> giving a fairly dry rundown of the game GTA. Murder, arson, drug running, oh my. <laughs> GTA is one of the harder ones to defend because, yeah, all of that's in there and you can just run over people and... Hey, I didn't play through story modes on GTA. Me and my mates just got together and was like, we'll just get a car, run around, see how long you can last before the cops come and get you and what have you, you can reap along, reap along the way. And we used to sell this at GameStation and, you know, parents would come in, part it down, little Jimmy stood next to them, who's clearly eight years old, and you would say to them, it's like, you are aware this is an 18 certificate game? And they would say, yeah, but he's going to play it around his mate's house. So I'd rather he play it at home. I get both sides of the argument. I do believe that certificates are on games for a reason, and I'm a slight hypocrite because both you and I watched movies that we shouldn't have. Apart from Child's Play. Apart from Child's Play. But I also think there is actually a world of difference between passive and active intake. Yes. And if you are a parent, you can make that decision. But that decision shouldn't be made just because Jimmy is playing around Paul's house. Yeah. But we get the whole thing about health warnings meant to be appearing before the games, warning people to not drive like this on the road. <laughs> It's like, what, from a top-down perspective? <laughs> also, in some of the missions, you're meant to drive casually. Like, Dara O'Brien was, yeah. was whinging about stuck in traffic. Am I not supposed to drive like that either? You cannot have your cake and eat it, Rockstar. No, you can't. Well, actually, they can. They can afford a fuck ton of cake, given how much money GTA Five is making. Yeah, but that cake is a lie. Sandbox or open world game, a game in which the player is left free to explore a virtual world in non-linear fashion. But we talked about GTA, which opens the door to our demo guy again, who's dressed as a city with a toy. This one's reaching a bit. And I really think that they maybe started this idea of having the demo sprite before they realised all of the things they'd be doing. And it's like, well, how do we do an open world sandbox game? I don't know, stick buildings to him? Yeah, I was going to say that isn't just him playing in a sandbox. That would have been a better one. It's probably what I would have pitched. But we go right back to the beginning We've got Elite. We've talked about this game before. It's a great game. Yeah, it's going to give you the, the illusion of it being an, uh, an open universe type thing, but it's not, not quite as sort of open. Not certainly as open as games are now. It's just very clever at making, you th at making you look and feel like you are in an open world universe. Yeah, it's very, very cleverly programmed to make the universe feel way, way bigger than it is. And it actually reminds me when No Man's Sky first came out and some people just went, well, Elite did it 20, 30 years ago. And it's like, yeah, but Elite didn't. Yeah, it didn't It made really. you think it did. Exactly. But it didn't. However, it's an amazing game. David Braben and Ian Bell, 1984, originally for the BBC Micro and Acorn Electron. 
It's crazy. Crazy yeah. that it was also on the BBC Micro, which for me lived in the maths classroom or the science classroom. Oh, yeah. that is I, BBC Micro is just that. It's in one room in a school and it has got the tomato game on it and that's pretty much about it. But when you kind of think about, you know, Brooker here talking about GTA 4, because I've never played the games. Like, I, I haven't played a GTA game since Vice City. So I haven't really experienced, like, 4 and 5. But then when you talk about it, it's like, it's a game that's got its own rail network and it's got its, like, you know, the various radio station stuff. It is a genuine full world. It's actually insanely impressive that these things do exist. And how far we've come from the uh, of elite making us think that we are in this open world to actually being in an open world. To having a world where you can be on one side of the city and if you're up high enough, you can see things happening on other sides. You know, you can see like, you know, five blocks over, there's a police chase happening. That's just one of those world events that's been triggered. That some people will get into a fight, that there'll be a car crash of its own. These are living cities. And if there was one criticism I could make of the gameplay of the Grand Theft Auto games is I would like, you know, unless I've got a rocket launcher over my shoulder, to just be able to walk along the streets, like take my time, listen mm. to the ambient burble from people, maybe have the radio playing, you know, just exist in the city without the risk of someone just running up to me and punching me because the game's like, well, you haven't done anything for five minutes. <laughs> You need to do something. Do something already. Or someone running screaming for me. Although, in you're playing GTA V and you're playing as Trevor, people running screaming for you is kind of part of the deal. Mm. I'm very excited to see what GTA Six brings. I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to it, and I'm hoping they put as much love into the single-player experience as they did with 4 and 5, despite the fact that we all know that GTA Online is the cash cow. Yeah. The interesting thing you said there is like, you know, it does feel like a real world. But the point that Brooker makes next is you're not going to confuse it for the actual real world. No, even with photorealistic graphics, you're not. Yeah. Because you're not. You know, the the plotline of Ready Player One slash two is this sort of like VR world that you go into, the Oasis, which is a, a you know an open world thing that is universes upon universes, and people have stopped caring about the actual world because they're more inclined to go into the Oasis and escape from the the, the real world that's falling apart around them is a very different science fiction prospect to someone playing GTA 4 and thinking, well, this is a real life. And we get into that whole media thing of people mistake it for the real world. And Charlie Brooker says, by that logic, people play Mario, they'll eat mushrooms and jump on turtles' heads. People play Tetris, they'll start throwing bricks at each other. These things don't happen. People play Street Fighter, they'll start punching each other. Well, guess what? They could have done the same after Ninja Turtles or, exactly. or, or Bruce Lee or Nunchucks or any of that stuff. Yeah. Violence has existed in this world for the millennia. It's not something that's new that's happened. War has existed you know, in this world long before video games did. Genghis Khan never played Grand Theft Auto. No. I think. <laughs> Maybe he played GTA London. Uh, yeah, that'd be it. I'm fairly certain Hitler was a Call of Duty player. And an artist. <laughs> but as Brooker said, games did start living down to that ideal. And I would argue that Manhunt 2 is kind of one of those games. Manhunt 2 is a new video game where the player gets physically involved in the violence. So your and emotions this, are recreated in the game. This is correct. You can slaughter them in an increasingly brutal manner. 
as you can see, he's curled up in the fetal position and we're still whacking away. I mean, that's pretty violent. That's correct. Isn't it insane that's a Wii game? Yeah, it's insane that Manhunt 2 is a Wii game. Although it does mean we get this, quite frankly, hilarious footage of a journalist showing how he'd beat a man curled up in a fetal position with a Wiimote. It's a case of, we're meant to be shocked by this, but this is actually even funnier than the Night Trap footage. Yeah. Not because of what's happening in the game, which is fairly horrific, but because of the man going, look, I, I wave the Wiimote and I'm beating him with a crowbar. And the actions on screen are not greatly tied into the actions that he's doing with his arms. I think he's miming to pre-recorded footage. That's, that was there my is assumption. A, that or there's a lot of latency. Yeah, which it probably is because like, if you swing once, that activates the animation. So if you swing once and if you try and swing again before the animation's finished, it is not going to just repeat the animation again. Not until the animation is finished and then registers your next swing. So if you swing three times, it's probably going to register two. I mean, even this game didn't come out like uncensored uh there was various cuts there was various censorships there was blurring of some elements even that edited version in the uk the bbfc were just like no no not going to give it a certification not going to allow it for release rockstar did appeal it and ultimately it did get that 18 certificate but it was greatly watered down I've got no opinions on the Manhunt games. It, I've never yeah. played them. Look, I've, I've played the first game because, of course, I did. I was a teenager when it came out and it was like the controversial game. So you've got to play it because you're a teenager. I'm a teenage boy, no less. It's indicative of the time frame that it came out. And I get why it was as popular as it was because the movies were doing the same thing we talked about hostile and and the torture porn genre it was basically a video game version of those movies so yeah like it, it makes sense that the game was made it would only be made in this period of time isolated period of time is when the manhunt games exist they do not exist outside of those four walls also, because I think it's the only time we'll get to actually mention him, Manhunt 2 did garner the ire of one Jack Thompson, one of the big US anti-video game hmm. kind of protesters, activist types who was just like, all video games are bad. Yes, even Candy Crush, especially Candy Crush, because sugar content. Sugary sweets. Sugary sweets. And you kind of like get a bit mad at Rockstar for stoking those fires because they knew what they were doing. They, they always they know what they do. They knew doing. that it was going to get this sort of media coverage. They were banking on it getting this sort of media coverage because this sort of media coverage is going to sell copies. The same thing happened with Bully. They knew it was going to get that level of media coverage because that level of media coverage will make people buy the game. And yet, amazingly, The Warriors which at the time was a very controversial film and the game very accurately represents the controversies of that film, that just came out. Yeah, it just came out. It's based on an old film. Films aren't evil, Luke. Video games are. <laughs> They're the new evil thing They're now. the new evil. They're this season's evil and they've got a new hat. Thanks to technological progress, the nasty stuff now looks nastier than ever. It's a long way from beat em and eat em to modern sex games such as the seriously creepy Japanese molestation title Rayplay, for instance. Yeah, I'm not even going to talk about this game. We can yeah. make, we can say that, you know, Rockstar knew what they were doing. This game's just kind of gross. Yeah, it's a bit gross. And that's it. Yep. Like the earlier games we talked about, they silly. were comically bad. Silly comic games. This this is cruel. That's it, really. Moving on. Let's have some more BBC footage from the base. Oh, one. man. When it cuts this guy who just lifts up a gun, it is fucking hilarious. Because <laughs> it looks like a real gun. It looks like a real gun. It looks like... 
a Harry Enfield parody. It was like, and if you've had enough time playing that game, you could always get out your gun and shoot your wife. Like, that's like it's that Harry I've been Enfield playing video games for the past five hours and I've gone gun crazy. That's exactly it. That's what it looks and feels like. It shows how great of a parody uh, uh, Harry Enfield and Chums was. But he is just, he's pulling out the gun to shoot these little nascent who, uh, pixels that have done nothing wrong on screen. Whereas modern video game gunplay is routinely portrayed with a frequency and bloodthirsty relish you simply wouldn't get away with in a film or TV show. Something like Call of Duty World at War here is a brilliantly constructed game, but it's also psychotically ferocious and astronomically tasteless. But even though my brain tells me this is horrible, I can't deny that I enjoy it. I just wouldn't really want someone to walk in and catch me enjoying it, which makes it just like loose women, basically. Well, you know, it couldn't be a show about video games in the late 2000s without Call of Duty coming up. I mean, to be honest, it wouldn't be a video game show in the late 2010s without Call of Duty probably coming up. Well, it wouldn't be a video game show in 2023 without Call of Duty coming up. I do like this bit, though. I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm not a big COD player, uh, as probably been well documented on this, but the the visual of Charlie Brooker mowing down people with gay abandon, pausing it so he could take a swig of beer and have a little burp, and then going like... It's really good. It's really well put together. And I just love the fact that he draws parallels between Call of Duty and Loose Women, a comparison <laughs> that only Charlie Brooker, I think, would ever do. Still, even to a psychopath like me, some modern releases are so deliberately unpleasant I find them too depressing to play through. Take the grisly atmospheric Condemned 2, for instance, in which you play an alcoholic ex-cop who has to stagger around this horrifying environment, swigging from bottles and fighting tramps with your bare hands. If you're playing this for escapism, you're probably Scottish. Huge slam on the Scottish here. <laughs> Poor old Scots. And Rab and Ryan were on this show earlier. Show them some respect. This is quite a YouTube clip to pull of a guy going around, almost sounding like that pilot that was on the When Games Attack, that was just desperate for people to die, 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 as this guy was going around showing off his favourite weapon, the sniper rifle. You can see how the heads rip off and the blood everywhere. This is amazing. Can you smell the burning <laughs> flesh? No, because this is not a real world. This is a game, mate. The thing is, is I bet you that guy probably did that maybe as a bit. Yeah. As a guy. Absolutely. Not thinking that everything on the internet is forever. And you can easily take things out of context. And before you know it, Charlie Brooker is using you as an example. Yep. Plus, as well, because it's, it's YouTube and stuff, you can always claim fair use. <laughs> and you don't, you don't even have to get the rights off of him to be able to air the footage. But he's playing Fear 2, sequel to Fear. It's perfectly fine. If you want to play it now, you can play it via backwards compatibility on the Xbox One or Series S or Series X. Again, it's, it's a title that... Uh, I know cover more than game through, uh, through my years at GameStation. The, f the first one at the very least. Now, I'm not saying he's mental, but he should probably be forced to cleanse his palate afterwards by playing something like this uh, pleasant neighbourhood simulator on the Wii. Hello. 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 Good morning. Hello. Ooh, see, isn't that lovely? Doesn't exist, mind the next of our fake Charlie Brooker games in this uh, pleasant neighbourhood simulator. Just a little, hello. And yet, it's a fake game. And yet. And yet. Bits of this 
fake game have appeared in real games. Uh, one of the Saints Rose game where you end up in kind of a 50s virtual reality sitcom land, mm. like inside a computer. There is a walking along the street and you're not punching, you're waving hello. <laughs> then there's things like Hello Neighbour. There's all these various games where for at least part of it, you are in a perfectly normal, friendly, happy world. Then everything goes to shitstorm city. Yeah. But that's the entire game. It would be lovely if it exists. But what is lovely and what does exist is this musical review of Mad World from Rebecca Mays. Here at last, a hardcore game on the Wii that's nasty, stylized violence that we call comedy, like itchy and scratchy, like Tom and Jerry. I just stabbed a guy through the eye with a road sign, pulled out his heart with my bare hands. Do I feel alright? No, I feel dirty. There's really something quite. Lovely, the song may be. Very, very well written, very well performed, very well sung. Very funny review, though, it may be. I do disagree with it, though, because I quite liked Mad World. Mad World, again, was another one of those Wii games. Uh, I remember last issue we were talking about the GameCube, and it was like, you don't buy a GameCube, that's for kids. Like You buy a PlayStation 2, you buy an Xbox. Those are, ooh, men, teenagers, ooh, men, men, men. <laughs> don't buy a GameCube, that's for kids and girls. The Wii had the exact same sort of image problem. It was a it, for the, the filthy casuals. Watch out, Quentin, the casuals are coming, that sort of thing. And... When games like Manhunt 2 came out, they're almost held up to be like, well, for kids, is it? Manhunt 2 is available on the Wii. And Mad World was a real big, for kids, is it? This game's released on the Wii. The uh, the House of the Dead game that came out. The, yeah. The exclusive House of the Dead game that came out on the Wii as well was another example of this. This is a proper, like, adult adult game a game for adults that is incredibly but it's incredibly gory and it's exclusive on wii and i played mad world and i actually quite liked mad world it might be because like i i was a big sin city reader so the style very much appeals to me that black and white cell shade the big red blood and everything and it was sort of a hyper violent game that i thought was quite funny and very cartoonish I liked Mad World. I didn't love it, and I don't. I never played it through to completion because after a while, I think it probably does wear a bit thin. I had a good time with Mad World for the brief period that I played it for. Well, you did, but the Germans didn't because it never oh. got released in Germany. Oh, well, unsurprising that is. Although, surprisingly, Australia released it unedited, and normally, like, Australia and Germany were the big ones for going, no, mm-hmm. no strict controls over your video games. And you're right, the violence was very cartoonish, almost Tom and Jerry-esque at times. I never owned it, but I did 
play it. I think I played a demo of it or something. Yeah, yeah and it, like, maybe not Tom and Jerry, but certainly Itchy and Scratchy. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. it's that kind of cartoonish. It's hyper surrealized violence. Done in the same style of Frank Miller's Sin City, which was kind of having on a bit of a resurgence because the, the movie had come out a couple of years earlier and was sort of like breathed a whole new life into the Sin City comics and they got a really nice like reprint edition uh, of each of the, the the series and stuff. It was the right time to make a game like Mad World with that style. But whether you agree with the review or not, it was a really nicely put together thing. This appearance for Rebecca Mays did really kind of like lift her profile up. Uh, I know she was working for Escapist at one point. Yep, which is our host to uh, Yahtzee. It was really nice to have this snapshot in time and also just a real tonal shift for the programme so far and something quite different. I also like that Brooker, you know, when he's had his four people doing their talking heads, he has had two from TV with TV backgrounds and two from the internet, from YouTube backgrounds. Yeah. And I think that shows he's a forward thinking man, knowing that like, I don't, we're not just going to put all of my TV mates on this. Let's give a platform to people like Rab and Ryan and Rebecca. Rhythm action game, loose musical simulation in which the player must perform actions in time to music in order to succeed. Oh, I was rubbing my hands at this genre because we've got the demo dude dressed kind of like Elvis with a Guitar Hero controller. It's rhythm action games, loose musical simulation in which the player must perform actions in time to music in order to succeed. And of course, Charlie starts with Parappa, but touches on Guitar Hero and then moves straight on to the Beatles rock band, which was the game of the time. Also, I think it's quite nice as well that we've gone from video game violence and we've used video game violence to have a review of Mad World done in a musical style to link us into music games. Lovely. Do you know what? That makes sense to me now because yeah. that was that was sticking my head of it feels quite late to have a musical interlude in yeah. the episode. But now you've just said that. I'm like, no. It's a nice little link. No, that is perfectly logical now. Yeah. I stand corrected. Charlie Brooker is right. This game is a watershed moment because it's got one of the biggest bands of all time. And it's moved them to the one genre they had thus far pretty much avoided, video games. The release of the Beatles Rock Band game is a true watershed moment for video games because it's probably got the biggest crossover appeal of any game ever, apart from that one where you push smiling class in the canal, which unfortunately I've just made up. The idea is that you, yes you, seize control of the Beatles and strum, bash or warble your way through their entire musical career from their stompy stompy origins in the Cavern Club through to their rooftop swan song. To take part, as well as the game itself, you'll need uh, one of the guitar controllers or the drum kit or a microphone or preferably all of the above. It's really designed to be played by four people at once and if you are playing on your own, for God's sake, don't let anyone walk in and catch you because uh, there's no way you can strum a plastic guitar and maintain your dignity. And it is my confession that this is the only rock band game I ever owned. I had all the Guitar Heroes, but I had uh, Rock Band Beatles on the Wii because you could use the uh, Guitar Hero guitar for it and have to buy any extra peripherals for it. Mm. I could have bought, like, you know, the, the, the McCartney, like, bass, you know, and all that sort of stuff, but I didn't. I just used the Guitar Hero one that came with Guitar Hero 3. But this is the only rock band game I ever owned. 
my friend had a rock band on the Xbox with all of the extra mm. gum, like the drum kit and everything like that. So I would just go around to his to play it. Personally, though, this was this was my only one. I mean, you picked a great one. I yeah, and, and I picked it because it, it's it's the Beatles, and like that, you know, it's a lot of my childhood, a lot of my teenage, and a lot of my adult years is surrounded by the Fab Four, and I wanted to be able to play through all these songs that I love. And I remember, like, you know, Yancey Croshaw reviewing this game when it came out at the time, and his only complaint about it is because you're following the chronological progression of the Beatles in their story, it means that there's no real consistency in difficulty on songs. Yeah. Like Guitar Hero has, these are the easy songs, these are the medium songs, these are the hard songs. You can play them in these orders because they're not really connected to one another. But if you're playing the story of the Beatles you are going to get various different songs in there. You know, like, While My Guitar Gently Weeps is going to be slightly different to Here Comes the Sun. Or, I was trying to think, so was, or pick another song that's on the White Album, I suppose. That would be a better comparison. Uh, but, Revolution. Revolution. Exactly. Something like that. So it's like they are different levels of difficulty. And that really was his only complaint about these sorts of things. Or that was really his only complaint about this game. And I kind of get it. Yeah. But I, like, I, I, certainly, I certainly do. And also, for me at least... I wanted to play through it in the chronological order because the work that harmonics put into this, into creating all those different sets, into showing the Beatles at all these different points in their career, the animation, the little bits of background studio chatter and all the stuff that made it, it's a beautiful. It is as much of a piece of art as anything in any rock band game ever. But when you do play a bunch of the early songs back to back, you're like... These are all very similar. Yeah, when you're doing all like the please, please me era, it's yeah. just like... Love me, do, love please, me do. please, please yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then I'm get... standing there and it's just like, it is... Ba, 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 ba. But thankfully, you then get to A Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Or I Feel Fine, which is one of the first examples of feedback in modern rock music. That beginning, the, the note that goes... Mm. And, and so those are those moments that break it out. But then when you get to the colour era, and for me in particular, Here Comes the Sun. Yep. I remember the first time we got this game on day of release and we got the complete set. Even though I already owned a complete set of rock band instruments, I was fully drinking the Beatles Kool-Aid on this one. I bought all the remastered albums and I got the full rock band set. And a bunch of us just sat there and we played it all day. And I sang vocals on Here Comes the Sun. And I remember we got to the end of the song and I just went, can we just pause before we move on? I just wanted to sit down and live in that moment because, of course, we had it turned up loud. Mm. You had all the harmonies around you. And it was a it was a beautiful moment. I still love this game to bits. We have all of the songs via methods in Rock Band 3 on the Xbox 360. So when we're doing our karaoke events, we don't have to do disc swap magic. But there is still part of me that just loves the complete package of the game. Yeah, I wish there'd been more. I wish we'd got more full album packs because we did get some packs released as downloadable content. But even on its own, even with just what's on the disc, this is probably one of the best singular representations of a band you will ever get in video game form. It's sure as hell better than Journey, the video game. It's better than Guitar Hero Aerosmith. Uh, definitely better than Guitar Hero Van Halen. I'd say maybe on par with Guitar Hero Metallica. That was pretty good, but none of them have the artistic creativity and involvement of the band or the family members of the band that the Beatles rock band did. 
But none of them are as good as pushing Mylene class into a canal. I'd actually forgotten that this came out in the same period of time with all the remasters and everything. It was all in the same day. I was going to say, yeah, like this is this was a big, big time for the Beatles. Actually, like it's really transport me back to that. I loved, loved, loved playing through this game. And like Brooker mentions this as well, that it's a case of everything in the background is so beautiful that it's kind of annoying that you've got to focus on the little tiny colored bits that are on screen. Yeah. Because you can't then really take in the majesty and beauty that's surrounding it. It is so stunning because particularly when you get to the, if you've never played it or you've never seen video footage, because of course copyright means a lot of the clips are taken down from YouTube. If you get to like the later albums, you start in the Abbey Road Studios, beautifully recreated. And if it's uh, Here Comes the Sun, George Harrison will start playing the guitar and then the studio melts away and they're on a hilltop. There are trees, there are swirling clouds. It's real. These guys were doing acid moment. Oh, yeah. But it's it's beautiful. And so many of these songs never had music videos. The Beatles did do promo films, but they never did them like this. And what I love is where there are songs where they did do promo films, they will often make nods to them. Uh, I Am The Walrus is a great one, which Mm. is a hilariously fun song to sing. But they look like they did a magical mystery tour. It's incredible. Oh, I want to go home and play Beatles Rock Band. I do as well. Like this and Dara's diatribe you had at the start of this. I haven't played a rock band game since you know the death of the rock band uh, games. It's sort of like in the, you know, the the early 2010s. But I really do miss them. And uh, actually, well, tell a lie. I uh, went to Hog when it was in Acton uh, way back when for a friend Stag do that I was arranging for. And I was like, well, let's go to Hog. And we, I did play it then. I played a Primus track um, because that's what I wanted to play. But uh, yeah, that's that's probably the last time. So that's still probably like eight or so years since I last picked up a Guitar Hero controller. But I, I really have had a hankering for it as of late because God darn, it's fun. And before you get in the comments, no, I'm not combining Rock Club London with the next <laughs> under consultation live. My blood pressure can only go so high when it comes to running events. But also, Charlie takes a pot shot at Yoko. Because of course he did. It was the style at the time. It was the style at the time. I think that joke has got slightly more tired as time has gone on. But yeah. it, it's like, yeah, it is what it is. Well, viewer, that's about all we've got time for in this video game wipe type thing. And now here's Fred Harris from an old episode of Micro Live summing up our entire show in a flipping sentence as well he might. Here's the conclusion. So, if you've never played a computer game, don't dismiss them. There are games for all mentalities. It's just that the good games are hidden behind a mass of crude shoot-em-ups. God, isn't that true to this day? Yeah. Isn't that true to this day? Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are good shoot-em-ups. There are shoot-em-ups that are brave and bold and do new things. Deathloop, I'm looking at you. I played that game for the first time uh, late last year. And I was blown away with how good it was. I was absolutely like, oh my God, this isn't just a first-person shooter. The time mechanic in this is so Mm. clever. But for every death loop, there's another brown shooter. Call of Duty. Just whatever the next Call of Duty is. And that, Ash, is the end of of this. Um, What is our current recording time? Three hours and 30 minutes. Three hours and 30 minutes. You know, once someone asked if we were going to do the follow-up to this... Which, yeah. is, which is 90 minutes. Yeah, someone asked that actually between us up recording part one and part two of this. And I'm really glad that we'd already said no. Yeah, we'd and already then we decided said no we weren't again. going to do it. Yeah, because, yeah, it took us three three and a bit hours to get through this record. So although that's, double, double, that's six hours. Although that's three and a bit hours to get through, like, 
the entire of video game history, roughly. Roughly. Like, you know, we cover all bases, all genres. It's probably the most games and topics we've touched upon in a single episode. And if it wasn't for the fact that we've already plotted exactly up to episode 200, I'd almost suggest splitting this into two parts. Yes. But apologies, you're going to get this, and it's still probably going to be about three hours long, even after I've edited it. Yeah, this, this will probably end up being one of the longer episodes, if not the longest episode we've ever put out. Awesome. Going out strong. But you can see, like, why this ended up not being a full series. Like, I think this is a great one-off. And yeah. it, it, it's kind of painted as a one-off thing as well, because you're right, like, this covers the entire history of video games right from the early doors, you know, going back to Tennis for Two. It covers the topics of controversy in video games. It covers every single genre type, more or less, to a certain degree, with a couple of reviews of here and there. But it doesn't really lend itself to more episodes like it. Because you've done so much of it in this first one. Yeah, if you were to do it as a regular series, you'd need to mix up the format a bit, make it half an hour as well. I, I mean, do, actually take a lead off a show that we're actually going to talk about next, next week. week. Of being more focused per episode. Yeah. He was interviewed by MCV UK, which we, we covered on the, the, the interview earlier in the episode, uh, where they were asked, you know, where he was asked, if you were to do more, what would you say? Would you want to do more? And he said, I doubt I would do a whole series because, well, never say never. It's an interesting one. Could I do a series? I suppose actually I could do a short series. This is all up for discussion. I can't say too much, but I was taken back by the response. Since it went out, I've spoken to a couple of other people who would be very good for appearing on the show, name, uh, name dropping Jonathan Ross mm. as a potential other person you could put on. And he was saying this, and this is perfect for this time. He's got a Neo Geo. Like that, like for me, like he's two, that guy. Like 2009, like especially when I was working at Game Station and stuff a couple of years prior to this, that's a status symbol. Yeah. You got, oh, if you've got a Neo Geo, you are someone to talk to. You are someone to have a conversation with. I mean, you know, it's no 3DO, but it is certainly <laughs> a status symbol. But it did do fairly good numbers. Like this did around what a screen wipe would do, around what a news wipe would do. So there was an audience for it, but I, I, do think that this is better served as a one-off special as opposed to even like a limited series thing i think this this works better as a one-off thing there are some things that haven't aged well and time has moved on and video games have moved on as well but i still think this is actually a good watch in 2023 because there's some interesting opinions there's some interesting talking heads it's a perfect snapshot of where we were at that time and what our opinions on video games were and i would say this one of the sections that has aged the best is uh rab and ryan mm -hmm. because what they're saying about british retro video games is still true there is now more chapters to it there are extra bits that can be added on but their whole bit about chucky egg about penetrator jet set willy all of Hover that stuff and all of it yeah it's still valid it still has a place uh, sections on things like the uh, satanic panic stuff. It's still valid. Video games are still being used as a scapegoat to this day. And then you've got stuff like the Beatles rock band, which also really, to me, captures the time when music video games were mainstream and people had little plastic guitars sat in the corner of their living room. Sure and did. they still got played rather oh, yeah. than ending up going to a charity shop or in the bin. Yeah. So there's a lot covered in this and I, I think Brooker should be proud of, of what came out as well and because of Brooker's style because of the way he writes it's a breeze 
Like this flows so lovely and it's so nicely. The 45 minutes really do fly by. And, and it, more than this podcast more, will. Yeah, I, I <laughs> wager so, yeah. So like, I, this gets a big thumbs up from me. And same, track it down. I will say there are versions out there on YouTube. Go and look on archive.org. The version there is a much higher quality. But that's going to be it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media at underconsolepod on Twitter, at under.console on Instagram, and, and threads. <laughs> And you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, chat with other listeners, other fans of gaming, old and new, you can do so over on our Discord, details of which can be found on our social medias, what any of them really, or of our show notes. And if you're bored of a Thursday night, you can tune in to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash underconsolepod, and watch me stinking up the video game world. And you can support this podcast monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod to get access to our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. And at the £5 level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. And if you're one of the cool £10 backers, you get your name read out on this show like these fine folk. Adam D, Adam Warrington, Andrew Greenwood, Andy Smith, Arcadia Wild Bill, Chris Price, Chrissy Tusix, Colin, David Palmer, Gordon Aiken, Gordon Brantz, Gordon Dempster, Harriet Mangagel, I am Cheadle, Ian Roberts, Ian Williams, Jamie Smith, Joe McGonagall, Joe Mitchell, Kevin. Kevin Kylie, Lawrence, Link, Mark, Matty Boo, Misha, Nick, Phil, Retrofund for everyone, Reese, Rich, Richard Downer, Richard Major, Sean Selena, Simon, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, The Amazing Cliff, Tom Dylan McCarefoy, Tom S. UBD, William Coddingham, Xanderthal, and Zach. We will see you in seven days' time. We're going to be looking at Video Game Nation. An interesting show for us to look at because it's my friends. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.